FlexTrack is the premier pen test reporting and collaboration platform, empowering your team to spend more time hacking and less time reporting. FlexTrack centralizes your data, streamlines tedious workflows, automates report building, and facilitates communication with stakeholders. To learn how you can achieve a 30% increase in efficiency and cut report cycles by up to 65%, head to securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack. Claim your free month of FlexTrack and get your copy of the Writing a Killer Penetration Test Report Guide today. Securing your organization against today's expanding threat landscape starts with data. Data you need to analyze at scale. And that starts with Devo. Devo's cloud-native logging and security analytics platform can handle unrivaled, see-it-all amounts of data and delivers the answers you need and stop waiting for its speed. All so you can confidently focus on the cyber threats that matter most. Devo. More data, more clarity, more confidence. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Devo to learn more. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, at least for as long as there is such a thing, for live stream reminders, highlighted clips, memes, and more. You can find us at Sec Weekly. Now on to the news. We've added Mr. Lee Neely is here with us. Lee, welcome. Ah, good to be here. Nice to be nice to be inside and warm. It's been it's been snowing all day, which brings up the question: How do you follow Will Smith in the snow? Fresh Prince. Oh, That's right. Fresh Prince. <laughs> we dropped Josh. Josh had to drop, but we get we added Lee. So we're here. We're ready to talk about stories. Uh, so uh, so I was going to say even trade, but no. no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that to your imagination. <laughs> The feds find that, over that's qualitative, not quantitative. That's right, 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 right. The feds have found over one billion dollars of Silk Road Bitcoin. Uh, one where did they find dollars. it? You ask. Uh, this is my favorite part of the article. The DOJ noted that it found Zong's holdings in an underground floor safe on a single board computer that was submerged under blankets in a popcorn tin stored in a bathroom closet when it uh, raided his home in November 2021. I mean, Crap, that's where I need to go look for my jump drive. <laughs> that's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say, Tyler. You Underneath need all an the underground floor safe on a single board computer submerged under blankets in a popcorn tin stored in the bathroom closet. What does a single board computer mean? I don't know. Like probably a Raspberry board. Pi. Or, it's like a <laughs> Raspberry Pi or BeagleBone Black or something like that. Is it a jump drive? I mean, that. I mean, that, that's not Tyler, really, in your case, maybe. Yeah. Technically, it's not a computer. Yeah. Is it? Technically, that could be a that could be a whole segment. There's there's no CPU there. A computer? What is it? Yeah, (laughs) there is no instruction. No, there's no. Yeah, there's no CPU. No. Used to refer to a human being as a computer. Human computer. Yeah. Because they computed stuff. Sam is shaking his head. Yes. It was a lot of Bitcoin. I'm actually surprised we didn't see an interesting influx. And I'm really curious, like, what the DOJ does with the acquisition of that money. Is that used for? Skunkworks projects is that used for out of band stuff? Does that go back to stolen asset recovery? Like how whenever, does that? How does that? Whenever I see cyber criminals that have had like a lot of Bitcoin, they're always on like this really expensive yacht with girls in bikinis. So like I'm wondering if our federal agents are now like on these really expensive yachts with girls in bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. No, it was, a, it was a lot of Bitcoin, like 3.6 billion. Is no that's a that's a large chunk of change. And well, no, it's only it was like, interesting it's because it's only like one billion now, right? Because the yeah, it's only it's only one billion now. That speaks to the to the market. Uh, still less than the last Powerball lottery. It, 
in the course of this call, it's gone down to about nine hundred million. <laughs> Just while Gosh. we were talking about it. Yeah. It was it was interesting because the way that this guy this guy actually wasn't even a distributor affiliate a, a market on uh, Silk Roads. The way the the hack happened was uh, he found a uh, a logic flaw within inside of the transaction and the withdrawal processing system that Silk Roads used for escrowing. Uh, so if if any of you play on the dark markets quite a bit, the most of the good markets have an escrow service or there's several escort uh uh escrow, escrow services <laughs> there are also several escort services is that where you get escorts is on the dark web and they use an escrow service all right i get it they do Continue. yes yes but they were uh there was a trigger where they had the the flow um, manipulated and he was able to get the withdrawal process to happen prior to the escrow process uh continuing and Obviously, that was a large amount because I think it was only 140, it was 140 transactions that were uh, that were stolen. And so there was a lot. There's only lot nine big- accounts he used. That seems really small, but wow. So, but so he created a bunch of accounts and basically withdrew the money from escrow before it was to be withdrawn by the person who would claim right to the escrow that sold the goods. Correct. Yeah, there was a there was a timing and a logic issue with inside of the escrow and and withdrawal process process. Damn. But like Silk That's Road not... was like ten years ago. So you're telling me law enforcement now ten years later has the technology to look back on the blockchain, which is the immutable record of what happened, and go <laughs> nab people for stuff they stole ten years ago, which I think is see awesome. the way the way I see this playing out is in the IRS they're like. Yeah, that was that's all right. That's all right. How what are the big what are the big uh, Bitcoin wallets yep. sitting out that haven't been touched? Mm-hmm. They're like, IRS is gonna get their money. Like they didn't pay taxes on this. IRS is gonna get their money. They found this one. They're like, we're gonna we're gonna run chain analysis across this and find this dude. Well, well, we, what do you think? I mean, what do you think? We, hold on. What do you think the threshold was? Like, if he had stolen a million dollars, would they be like, eh, eh? I think that's probably below their threshold of caring at yeah. the moment. At the moment. At the moment. Very yeah, yeah. good point, Larry. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, so, we yeah. we covered a story about this a couple months ago about where the IRS got involved in one of those yes. cases about you know you know looking at the excuse me the history of the blockchain to find this stuff. They've been doing this a while. Yep. Yeah. And they're so they're I actually had a, I had really a, really good. I had a Lee? dumb question. So I'm I'm reading through them. They talked about 25 physical Cascius coins. I don't know how to pronounce it. And I'm thinking physical bitcoins. That doesn't compute for me. So what? I'm, what? What? Clue me in. It's like an NFT, please. <laughs> but that's still not physical. But yeah, and it probably is those, just those, valuable. Those were separate wallets, and those are separate coins. But yes, they they had other digital slash physical uh, altcoins that were as part of that kind of <clears throat> bounty or loot or whatever you want to call it. Is that like opposite okay. of an NFT? Like a physical representation that is. Backed by the digital currency, well, you, you where can, isn't an NFT the opposite? Of you can get yeah, physical that's a Bitcoin. digital asset backed by a mm-hmm. other digital asset potentially. <laughs> maybe yeah, a physical asset. True. It's not but, really a physical asset because gold's not really a thing anymore. <laughs> but if you want, we can sell you an NFT for these twelve. That's right. I bet you could. <laughs> yeah. um, Linux is moving ahead in enabling kernel IBT by default. In, uh, in in lighter news, is everyone ready to talk about indirect branch tracking and Intel's control flow enforcement <laughs> technology? <laughs> I was like, what? Um, what the Paul, hell? you're breaking up. You're driving yeah, through exactly. a tunnel. <laughs> Hello, Paul. We can't hear you. I'm sorry. Oh, there's an echo. So, in other news. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I mean, uh, yeah, hold on. let me let me try and come on. There's a someone's got an echo, but uh, let me try and uh, explain this at a at a high level, and then maybe we'll dive in because um, this this was really cool. The rabbit hole I went down. So um, with respects to control, so control flow enforcement technology or SET is technology developed by Intel that is hardware backed protections that essentially prevent um, ROP chains and jump instructions from happening in like out of like weird places. Sam shaking his head. Did I get that right, Sam? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's actually fantastic. Microsoft has had it for a while. So you cannot enter a module anywhere except at the correct entry point. And all the ROP chains rely on jumping right to the end where you have one or two instructions and then a return. So it's actually brilliant. Mm. <laughs> And uh, former Intel engineer that I spoke with agrees with you, Sam, that it is a very brilliant uh, methodology and in, in technology to prevent against uh, these style attacks. Um, also, uh, with respect to the Linux kernel, so I'm assuming uh, there's also like software enforcement of this as well. And in the Linux kernel, there is indirect branch tracking which in this case uses control flow enforcement technology to enforce this. So it has to be some kind of software component to take care of the hardware component. We've seen this a lot. Ang Sui talked about this in the interview, right? That hardware engineers will put this cool hardware stuff together, but you need firmware and software to actually take advantage of the hardware features. Um, so the Linux kernel uses indirect branch tracking. Now, if you follow down that rabbit hole, um, I found a great black hat talk from I believe it was given a Black Hat 2019 called Drop the Rop, Fine-Grained Control Flow Integrity for the Linux Kernel. Uh, Zhao Moreira, I don't know if I pronounced his first name uh, correctly. Um, he is a Brazilian security researcher. Seems like a really nice guy, uh, actually. Uh, and along with some other researchers, one of which was from Brown University, Larry, which is hmm. kind of interesting, uh, gave that presentation at Black Hat that was basically the same topic, right? How do we uh, protect uh, ROPs and jumps um, from happening on the system? And so I was like, well, I wonder what, what he thinks about this being added to the Linux kernel by default. And I tracked down his Twitter account and lo and behold, he says, uh, fine IBT is making its way into the Linux kernel. It is priceless to see a project I started years ago uh, they gave me so much joy growing up. So he's excited about it. My friend who used to work at Intel is excited about it. Sam's mm. excited about it. Like, that's enough for me to like be excited about it, right? E even though I'd love to dive more into the technical details and exactly how this, how this works, we'll reserve that for another time, uh, perhaps. Because um, also the YouTube video from his talk uh, at Black Hat only has 500 views. Huh. It needs more. Well, it's in the link is in the I show mean, notes. Yeah, all, all There's probably only 500 aside, people I mean, that understand it. <laughs> this, this, right. Yeah. I mean, it is very cool when you understand what it is. It's like, holy crap, why don't we have this? I'm wondering when we'll see 6.2 in standard distributions of Linux. But that's not negative. I'm just wondering when we can just have it there. Was it 6.2? Oh, yeah, you're right. It was 6.2. 6. 6.2, I'm, I'm not like... I'm not excited about 6.2 yet because I think it's going to be a while before that trickles down. I mm -hmm. think in, in Manjaro slash Arch Linux, you can be... I'm on 5.19. Um, mm -hmm. You can go to 6.0. 
and then it has another option. Uh, man, Charles puts this in the graphical interface. You can go to six point one, but it says it, it's experimental. Um, and I, I lean on Manjaro for kind of like, cause they do more upstream testing of arch to make sure that like the bleeding edge of arch is, you're not going to cut yourself too bad on it. I say too bad cause you mm -hmm. still cut yourself. Um, so I, I'm five nineteen. to your point, Leah, right? I think it's going to be some time before we're seeing 6.2, uh, Linux kernel adoption, which is getting some like amazing features as they're not necessarily security related, but there's like some really interesting stuff going into 6.2. I think rust rust is in 6.1 right. and later too so yeah i thought it was 6.2 but you definitely don't want to but you definitely don't want to jump on this because something like that control flow guard is very likely to uh, have bad consequences <laughs> yeah it means like it'll probably prevent legitimate stuff from running right yes well. it is an interesting technology though because your your kernel control flow integrity is actually supposedly not affecting your performance uh, by very much, which is a right. hard concept to actually adopt, especially from a hardware standpoint. So that's not an easy uh, performance trade-off to to usually get. So this is this is pretty novel, and I'm curious to see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the Red Cross. Oh says, gosh, here we go. Says don't hack me. Now I, I want to put oh, this in this, context. Th but... This article made yeah. my brain hurt, and I actually had to go get the paper. All right, and but hold on. Paper. Oh, yeah. But hold on. So, oh. but the Red Cross will go into, let's just say, militarized zones as an example, and do relief yeah. work. And what they yep. do with the infrastructure that they put up is, I don't know if it's like literally the Red Cross, right? They've got a symbol that's like, "Hey, we're not really. We're in the fight. We're, we're not in the fight. We're just helping people." Like. Don't attack us. I'm like, okay, like that. Don't hurt me, bro. Yeah, in that <laughs> yeah, context, me, bro. in that context, like it makes sense. I I can't tell <laughs> from history like how effective that's been or not, and how many like maybe there were attacks that were accidental or on purpose on relief efforts that were from Red Cross and others, perhaps, right? But this their notion is very Red Cross like like we're here to help. Mm -hmm. Don't attack us. But now we translate that yeah. into the digital sense, and they're like, well. We need like a, a digital uh, emblem that says like don't hack us and, and hence my like don't hack me bro. Um, so the article says basically someone I write what I just said. Red Cross staff working in conflict zones has their <clears throat> recognizable red and white emblems to signal they're helping people and should not be targeted. Um, uh, as warfare and attacks increasingly move into cyberspace, the organization wants to create a digital emblem that would alert would be attackers that they have entered computer systems of the red cross or medical facilities now I, I may also want to point out that if they did do this or maybe they were already doing this and you as an attacker did attack them like your punishment's probably gonna be pretty severe right like mm -hmm. right. they're gonna throw the book at you for that one and maybe that's part of the deterrent but as everyone's already hinting at like this this is not really gonna work or stop cyber criminals no no. Well, it'll stop me. I mean, wow, everybody all at once. Wait, sorry, say that again, Sam. I mean, it'll work against some of them. I mean, our evil already made a big point of saying they would not attack medical facilities. I think they wrote them on. So it is pretty widely recognized that it's bad public relations to do that. Mm. And there are other groups that do target medical facilities as well. So. Man, I was just, just going to say, like, no one cares. Manny had a comment in there. Well, I was just say my take on it would be that I think, yeah, of the those that 
that are malicious actors, I think is up to probably 30% of them that would pay attention to that, that would kind of still have a pang of conscience and stop. That doesn't stop all the rest of them and those who target medical facilities. They would just the, be like... You mean, Mandy, the, the ethical criminals? The ethical <laughs> criminals. Okay. Yeah. Because, as we know, there's a continuum of ethics. And <laughs> this is true. There's just ones that have a business model. Well, I mean, think of Hell's Angels that will protect, you know, women who are getting beaten or things. Yeah, they may go out and kill 40 other people, but they will not allow this thing to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Mafia had similar kind of ethics and and rules, right? Yeah. Yeah. But is is that is that risk worth the the effort? Like I see a lot of numbers, a lot of dollars where they're trying to embed IP addresses, DNS names, apply for this like. This seems ripe for abuse from a social engineering. Yep. Like, hey, I got I got a red emblem. Don't Just hack me, bro. Click my link. Don't hack me, bro. And here's here's my uh, here's my four hundred one three C. Yeah, paperwork. I was thinking the same thing. Just Tyler. open this document. Yeah. Like, this doesn't help anybody from the standpoint of a emblem. I mean, we see the the lock. We see protected by McAfee. We see secure, uh, digital, whatever shopping cart. Like. Hackers don't care, like unless you're an adversary, uh, and and even going back to the war and the physical aspect, like look at World War, look at World War Two, look at Afghanistan. Do you think the Afghani terrorists cared whether or not you had Red Cross on? No, they were ransoming the shit out of journalists, Red Cross volunteers, humanitarian efforts. In fact, that was a blazing red sign to hey, capture me. Our organization has money; they'll pay for me to get back. Mm -hmm. I didn't make the news, but that happened all the time. Yeah, so I mean, is, it still happens. Like you think about some of the things that we're seeing in the the early days in Ukraine. Like, yeah, we're going to grant these people safe passage, and next thing you know, they're getting blown up by a missile. Uh, yeah, like, oh, but where does it happen a lot? Is it Syria that's like really known for capturing Turkey and Syria? Turkey yeah. and Syria. You end yes. up in Turkey, you cross the border to Syria, and there's several camps there. That I've, suck I've listened to a. a podcast or two about that and like it's like it's really bad like what tyler's saying absolutely mm-hmm. happens and they i want to say jordan harbinger interviewed someone that that helps negotiate with the the terrorists to get people back and he was like do not go the, to turkey they'll just and kill you they'll just yeah, cut your hands like and do not try and go be a hero journalist in syria because you will be captured and you will likely not get out, and if you do, you're not going to be in good shape. Like Tyler said, you might be missing a hand, and they might keep you for years, and you're not going to any medical attention or have nutrition for that whole time. Like You're messed up. I see the intent, and I, I see what they're trying to do, and Red, Red Cross in general has kind of been that way, but they're, they're very idealistic, and they're very kind of that, that Berkeley hippie, like kumbaya the world. Uh, you, you look at the last time they got hacked, what was it, last year, this year, sometime, like they pleaded with the hackers and they tried to negotiate over, you know, like if we can just have a realistic conversation, if you can just understand where we're coming from, like they have no idea. They don't understand their adversaries. They do not understand the mindset of the attacker. They literally are this like kumbaya, the world, like people are people and they'll understand this. That's mm. not really how the world works. And they should know that having dealt with the worst of the worst uh, from conflict standpoint. But yeah. and, I, I and, still think and, that they're there. And, and Tyler, I'm a little bit with you, um, you know, when I originally read this, it made my brain hurt. Like, yeah, we're going to have some semantics and IP addresses. And I'm like, that's not how this works. 
and I'm thinking strictly IPv4 addresses, you know, discounting IPv6 because no one's using IPv6. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Except attackers. But but, but I went <laughs> and looked at the actual paper for the research that they had done behind this. And I think they did a really good job laying out the case and the detractors and some potential technical solutions. And because part of the thing that I was worried about is like, oh, we're going to use semantics and IP address. I'm like, these clearly are not technology people that said these words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't think I was that far off. And I apologize if I'm insulting anyone that was on the board that d- developed this stuff because the list is in the PDF for the paper that re- they released. And of the list, I could see two people that were current technologists of about, I want to say, 60 people. All of them were director level, chair, professor, mm-hmm. any of those types of things. And that kind of concerned Again, me. Berkeley Academia, like, in theory, this always sounds good in an academic standpoint, in a theory paper, in whatever you're going to push from that standpoint. Once you deploy this, like, the how of this, you talk about CDNs, you talk about high availability networks, you talk about cloud distribution and how these IPs and... and symbols are going to be deployed on technologies and then you start to think about containerization and the cloudless or serverless models that we're leveraging this is just there's just no good way to do this without this getting abused and being leveraged for malicious intent i i I will i will say uh nx1 is the list of the participants and i will say that the fourth person on the list is uh, previously assigned to the U.S. Cyber Command, U.S. Air Force, United States. Has the most epic name for someone in that role. Major Gordon Boom. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Ace or something. But yeah, that's right. pretty... That's Boom. Too. <laughs> but, well, look, if there's a simple, foolproof way to do this. You just charge them $8 a month to put a bark next to their name. <laughs> and that oh. can't be <laughs> Nothing can go wrong there. You're right. Sam's got it. Say, uh, I'm wrong. Yeah. Charge them eight dollars yep. a month so they can put the Red Cross logo on it. No, wait, no. Right. Oh. <sighs> well, I mean, maybe that's the that's what the UK government should do. You know, seal of approval. You've been scanned by the UK government. You're good. Because yeah. just UK... like DHS CISA for for your poll. <laughs> yeah. So the UK security agency um, is scanning the country for bugs. Uh, it says, yeah. we design our request to collect the smallest amount of technical information required to validate the present slash version and or vulnerability of a piece of software. We design the request to limit the amount of personal data with those uh, devices. So, like, you know, no need to panic. We're here from the government to scan your systems. Everything will be fine. Uh, Japan also tried this a few years ago. They were scanning IoT devices for vulnerabilities as part of a government program. Uh, my I mean, they could on... do this cheaper and look at Shodan. I was just going to say, you know who's done this before? <laughs> Shodan. I like, mean, <laughs> Rapid7 has a project uh, that scans the internet. Um, Qualys. There's other mm-hmm. nonprofits. Oh, who's yep. the guy? There's a guy in like the Robert Netherlands. Grant. What's uh. his name? Uh, I can't think of it. He would. He did a Darknet Diaries episode. And he basically scans the internet for vulnerabilities and helps report them. Uh, I've talked about him in a presentation and on the show. So there's other like volunteer programs. So I think where this can really shine and be a positive thing 
is if everyone can not everyone, but select organizations get together. So like in the U.S., if it's CISA in collaboration with Shodan, in collaboration with CERT, puts together something, this is we're going to put together a formal program uh, to go do this, includes volunteers and industry experts as well to serve as advisors or, and, and what have you, and, and keep the balance, so to speak. So it's not just like, again, hey, we're here from the government to scan your systems. Uh, I think this type of initiative uh, would be think much better. The, the early warning Bye. system and like say something like Log4J comes out or the Exchange Zero Day where we already have these scan data and we have an idea of what infrastructure is out there or we're seeing actively exploited and or leveraged infrastructure where we're helping respond to, you know, I do this through several working groups. Uh, will notify a victim that doesn't either know they're breached or know their infrastructure is being used or know that their data is being exfiltrated. Like that provides some value in that standpoint for getting ahead of the attacks. I don't think it provides a ton of value from stopping attacks, but it does give a an idea and some early indicator warnings in order to get ahead of maybe more prolific attacks or infrastructure being leveraged uh, throughout the you know the course of the internet to do additional bad things. So there's a there's a downside to this too. You know, I my employer gets regularly externally scanned through DHS processes, and the first thing you got to do is get all the noise out of the system, teach them what's an acceptable level of risk, you know, figure out the terms and how to dance, which is really disruptive. I mean, you need you need resources to respond to, and you know, you have to make sure you you whitelist those those as differentiating from attack. Um, so it comes as an expense, mm. um, and I'm not sure that the intended people that would value from this are ready to step up with all the work they have to do to be ready to respond to these attacks. That's even before you get to me- get to remediation. Uh, I love the idea at the surface, but th- there is a dark side to it. I agree, Lee. I think uh, whitelisting the, the, the IPs and the scans so that your internal incident response teams aren't responding to something that really isn't a threat actor. That's that's an important point. Mm-hmm. I mean, additionally, that uh, that data is stored somewhere, and notoriously, governments uh, are not always the best at retaining and securing that data, and or who they share it with sometimes can get leaked or be questionable as well. So I'm hoping that's uh, well thought of beforehand. Mm-hmm. Not that we couldn't go and scan the internet ourselves, so I'm not sure that there's anything... You know, proprietary or special there. It's just someone else has done all the work for you. Right. Yep. Um, this story about this company, Fizz, is really interesting. Um, so the headline... Plop, plop, fizz, fizz? God. I, oh, what a relief I, it is? I don't know how I found this one, but I did. Um, so this was like an opinion piece uh, from the Stanford Daily. Wow. Because uh, the story stems out of Stanford. And so Fizz previously compromised its users' privacy and may do so again was the headline. So here's the, here's the story, the TLDR, as it were. Stanford dropouts create a new social network for college students called Fizz, claiming it's an anonymous way to communicate with fellow students safely, do heavy, it sounded like manual moderation to prevent bullying and bad things from happening. Um, you need a .edu email address to join. Like Facebook. Up, up to this point, like that sounds really familiar. Okay, Facebook. That was Harvard. This is Stanford. Okay, <laughs> um, so uh, security researchers then, which I'm assuming were also 
in college and had an edu address and were able to interface perhaps or maybe they didn't need that i'm not quite sure it's probably in some open s3 buckets um <laughs> close close firebase was it google's i think it was google firebase um, yes so security researchers figure out <clears throat> that the data is not protected in the cloud like at all uh they can see uh the researchers can see all user data and even modify it and that includes phone number the the whole thing so they report to fizz and fizz is like guys guys funding at this point like they're they're growing this new social media uh company they say thanks and then turn around and they sue the researchers shouldn't they know that doesn't work <sighs> the eff God then damn. steps up to represent the researchers the flaws get fixed and the, the charges are dropped and, and seemingly no one is harmed unless you're still a Fizz user using technology from a company that has just sued people who disclose problems uh, in to, their platform. You know, in an attempt to get them to fix them, not to extort them. Mm-hmm. <sighs> mm. And that's how the story goes. And hopefully I don't have to cover stories like this because it's really sad. Like finding... I mean, it's, it's hard, man. Like you're a new startup maybe not well versed in this in this type of thing and maybe one thing we need to do is a better job uh, of educating startup founders that are creating software and platforms but look if someone comes in and points stuff out for you that you didn't have to pay them for like don't sue them because that looks bad for you yeah and part of it is like i i we're kind of shaming fizz here but i mean rightfully so yeah. like don't yep. do that yep lee, lee you sounded like get a comment in there well I was going to approach it a different way. The same thing Paul's saying is, I mean, the way you do this now is this vulnerability disclosure program. Remember in the past, we had to get permission and all that stuff going on, but you have still had these researchers going out there, and now you have a framework for they can work with. You can compensate them, and by golly, you get you get free intel you might not have had otherwise. It's, it's a good thing, but you've got to be ready for it. This company is young enough. This this should not have been foreign to them. Mm-hmm. This should not. I mean, this should not be a thing today. Like anybody that looks at security or, or is thinking about security or has even started a company should understand how bugs and process. Like history has made mainstream news. So like these, these should not be issues. I don't. I don't even know. I, no. I, but I think. Say. But I think one of the issues is, and I'm, I'm not saying this was necessarily this case, but I think there are cases where a company is about to secure some funding and a researcher points out this really huge glaring vulnerability yep. or series of vulnerabilities in their software and they're like, we can't disclose this now because it could jeopardize the round that we're in. And I can see that. Maybe some of mm-hmm. the communications and education also need to happen on the funding side so that they understand that. That all software companies have vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, you know... That's just a fact. Now, whether they're negligent in either creating these vulnerabilities or immoral or unethical, right? I mean, that could impact funding. Sure. But if everything's on the up and up, I don't don't feel like it should. I mean, it might impact your round because you might not be able to build features because you're going to spend time fixing stuff. But that's when you're a really small startup, too. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors at play. Yep. The, uh, the The other one, too, that I think, Paul, is that, you know, we're saying we shouldn't be talking about this type of thing anymore because you go into a company, you should be doing building insecurity from the start. Yeah, well, they should know that. But don't go and sue the researchers that are trying to help you. Um, but 
we say this because we have been doing this and we've seen this story yeah. so many times over the last almost two decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These folks are drop college dropouts that like, like they're barely a twinkle in their dad's eye type of thing that they haven't experienced these right. same type of things like us old people have. Well, and I think yeah. the, so it they may be, miss it. Maybe some, it's hard though, because like, what I want to say is if this happens and you're about to get funding and someone finds some glaring vulnerabilities, go back to the researchers and don't sue them. Be like, look, we're about to get some funding and we just need time to address these issues. In fact, this funding that we're, that we're going to get is going to help us get resources to fix these issues. Can you hold off for X amount of time? The problem with that. And thank you. Yeah. And thank you. The problem. Well, yeah, I mean, that can work sometimes. Or like the problem with that is, the issues that these researchers found in the case of Fizz were like fundamental Egregious. violations Egregious. of everything that they were telling their users, which is like ethically where I have the issue with it. Mandy? Mandy, lady in the pretty hat. <laughs> <laughs> A few things. Well, um, I think it's completely immature and idiotic that the founders, they're using a set database product. They're using Firestore. So that would be like a preliminary thing of figuring out how do I configure this because that has the ability to do it. What it just sounds like such a morally disingenuous thing though, to have done that to their users, to keep bringing up the total anonymity. And it, I don't know. The whole thing is so infuriating. Now, see, yeah. they, they use that product, well, and they should have known how to secure it, but they dropped out of Stanford before they took that class. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There you go. So I was looking at it. I mean, it's annoying to have a vulnerability discovery. And, and, yeah, you could be mad as hell about it, but don't take it out on the on the people reporting it. Right. No. You know, you, yeah. Why would you go? Hey, cool. I mean, I'm guessing there probably was some beef between them because the researchers that found it did graduate from Stanford and all yes. had cybersecurity experience and everything. So yes. they got to take those um, courses. You're going to, huh? <laughs> they got to take those they courses on how to secure courses. the platform. Well, 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 that, 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 or like, I would, I would often go pen test and help my former companies, local businesses. Like, hey, like I'm offering this to you because I don't want you to be vulnerable because a, my stuff might be on there, or b, like that's my alma mater, or that's yeah. the place that maybe I have some sentimental value to. So I think they also took the the wrong mindset. Maybe, maybe that's a difference in mindset. Mm-hmm. And again, it always, it probably was a a bad board of directors or bad executive leadership that didn't understand the security side of this and a bad technical team explaining and articulating why this is something good and had a, having to frame or maybe have risk to save their job because of maybe a round of funding coming or uh, some vaporware that wasn't quite done, code not quite released. Like all of those things play into a much larger picture that people don't often put background behind, but still have a, an important role to play in, in how security happens in places. Yeah. Um. I also think it'd be interesting in context of this story in, I want to say like HackerOne and BugCrowd have various programs, maybe for open source, right? But maybe different programs for startups where they can get in the the bug bounty ecosystem so that there is, uh, how about that for a segue, an arbiter 
in these situations. <laughs> Some arbitrage. Arbiter's our next yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, which is more about uh, bugs, which is kind of interesting. Um, Arbiter was interesting. So this story I picked up from Thinkst. What does Thinkst call that? They do it. Is it quarterly? They round up all the security research. The threat research Thinkst. report. I think it's quarterly. Thinkst, yeah, it does the... Ah, now I can't think of it because you should totally... You should totally read it. And I don't now I don't remember. I don't know why they don't have a link to it on their homepage because it's a really great thing. They they basically summarize. Um, I was talking with Haroon about this a while back. They summarize all the research uh, mm. that they observed in a giant report, right? So they take the hundreds of papers <clears throat> that have come out in information security, hundreds of presentations. They categorize it <clears throat> and they kind of give you like their take on like the best of the best. So I didn't like read every single line in the entire Thinkst report. Like I s- skimmed it. I'm like, what looks interesting? Dug into a couple of different areas. And I landed on Arbiter, which is being presented at Usenix. I, is this the one they haven't presented or did they present this? No, they presented this I think one. they did present yeah. this one. This was presented at Usenix. Um, and so what they did was... On the surface, it was like nothing new. They combined static analysis with dynamic analysis to find flaws in binary programs. Like, oh, I'm like, hold on. I feel like this has been done before. And then they go on in the paper and they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, this has totally been done before. And here's all the projects that did it. And, and here's what? their capabilities. And here's what we did it's differently to, com- to put our capabilities in combining static and dynamic analysis. Uh, and it gets like really in-depth uh, in the weeds about how you use both static and dynamic, like not just you got to understand how static analysis works, how dynamic analysis works, mm-hmm. and the techniques. Then there's like techniques that combine the two. They analyzed all of those, came up with their own method, and this culminated. Like the part that's impressive, whether or not you want to dig into the details of static and dynamic uh, analysis, they said um, once they came up with their new method, they wanted to use it. So they created an open source project that implemented called Arbiter, uh, ran it on 76,516 binary programs collected from x86-64 Ubuntu 18.04 software repositories. Um, we also demonstrate its precision by analyzing 436 CWE-131. So what they also did was, we pause there for a moment, particular bug classes lend themselves more closely to their particular combination of static and dynamic analysis. Yep. So I, I think it was like basically memory buffer overflows was one. Um, pseudo random number generation. There was a certain number of classes they tied back to the common sure. weakness in enumeration. They're like, this bug class we can detect really well. Um, so they found a bunch of those bug classes and um, they basically... Um, in 366 programs, right, found CWE-131, which I don't remember what it is. So uh, ultimately the results say that they can detect zero-day vulnerabilities in, I forget how many how many they found. It was a bunch of CVEs that they mm-hmm. end up publishing because they found actual bugs. One of them, um, we found and reported an exploitable vulnerability CVE 2018-18311 in the Perl runtime and heap overflow, a heap error that affects all 32-bit programs compiled 
by the OCaml compiler. That's interesting. Like that. So if it was CVE twenty eighteen, that means it was reported in twenty eighteen. Right. That Could means be. they've been working on this for a long time. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a great point. I'm not sure why that CVE number is. Unless it was additional so additional stuff that complemented or was a result of CVE 2018. Or they didn't fix it. Yep. Yeah, it reintroduced. It was <laughs> CVE 2018, but they reintroduced it. Maybe. Interesting. <clears throat> I forgot where it said uh, how many actual vulnerabilities. It's in the paper that I linked to in, in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really cool. That's neat. Mm. We, we we can't skip two stories today. I only have two that I want to cover. Mm. Oh no, we're not we're not we're not going to skip. You want to oh, oh, okay. so we'll talk. You want to talk about SGX next? Don't forget. Lord. Don't forget. I mean, he's got so, some stories so in here too. Three. All right. Well, let's let's cover SGX. Let's let's uh, get that one out of the way. <laughs> Tyler, I need to get this one out of the way. Here we go. It's, it's like so. It's been haunting. Freaking. <laughs> holy crap! And I my coworker. He explained it to me, and I still don't understand it. <laughs> so, the title of this article uh, was Intel AEX Notify Support Prepped for Linux to Help Enhance SGX Enclave Security. Uh, AEX is Asynchronous Exit Notification Mechanism to Help with SGX Enclave Security. SGX is Software Card Extensions. So, that's a whole lot of words I don't level. understand. The high level. No. Also keep in mind, AMD has SEV, which is the AMD's equivalent of SGX. Basically, Intel and AMD said, if you want to take your workload from your computer and you want to go run it on someone else's computer, but you want it to be secure and protected in that environment, you need some special hardware and software technologies to protect your workload on running on someone else's computer. Right? And that that's essentially the goal of wow. SGX and SEV at a high level. Can I do that? Can I use someone else's computer to run my stuff? So we're already doing that. I know, but like... <laughs> right? What's that, Tyler? So we're doing that already. We're just not doing it protected. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Potentially. I mean, there are, I, I believe there are cloud providers that are using SGX. However, you can, you can go back and go down this rabbit hole that I've started to go down <laughs> and start reading through the security research that's presented at conferences like Recon and Black Hat and Cansec West that talk about attacks against um, being able to access and or manipulate the protection mechanisms offered by SGX enclaves. It essentially, Which is a memory or execution space on the process. Correct. And it, right. I mean, a, a, effectively, it's more than this on Intel. It's more. It's effectively, <laughs> you're taking an area of memory and you're encrypting it. So no one else can access it or, or see it. If they do access it, it's encrypted. Intel's technology, because like my next logical question was, wait, stuff has to flow like between things on buses on the computer. What if I were to sniff the bus? And in Intel's case, I believe, I'm not sure about AMD, but in Intel's case, they do, like if you sniff the bus, it would be encrypted. Hmm. Which which is pretty wild. Like the, the, and Intel is and, biting off a lot. And do here. and and you know and I know you don't have all the details, but I think about that. Like, great, you've got this encrypted section of memory. What keys was it encrypted with? Where are they stored? And are they in oh, some God. other don't, part of memory? Yeah. Oh God, don't ask. Okay, that. now now <laughs> don't, don't, yeah, that, that's that's don't horrible. Ask the key <laughs> the key management and in, in how they do encryption. I do not know the answer. 
Um, Don't worry, it's all rot twenty six. It's fine. Right. It's awesome. Uh, Don't sure worry, we're from the government. We're here to protect you. That's <laughs> right. I'm not sure if they're storing it on the TPM or not. In any case, uh, the attacks um, are not, <laughs> at least the ones that I've looked at, are not based on like the key or key manipulation, yep. but are based on manipulating and or finding ways to access the memory like page tables, right? So you've got uh, virtual memory and you've got physical memory and then you've got a page table that's the mapping between physical memory and virtual memory. SGS, that might also have functions associated with that particular space and memory to do interesting things or have access to interesting things. Correct. So, like, so like stored procedures, as it were. Yeah, but then there's yeah. also some, like, if you can gain access to these pages or manipulate the page table, there's, like, artifacts that are left behind once the enclave uh, goes away sometimes or, or changes and, and what have you. So, yeah, there's, like... Uh, because it has to create it. swap space. So that, that space right. is, is changing, and that swap space has those artifacts because of that continual encryption and decryption in order to put it into a location that is accessible for a function for a limited period of time kind of then it gets into <laughs> interrupt descriptor tables and all kinds oh, of yeah. yeah yeah that's just okay, come on guys oh. y'all, y'all put manny to sleep i know it gets it gets really deep <laughs> it's it's so bad it is so worth the read like it, it was two hours of well-invested time of just realizing i don't know shit about shit um but it it is very valuable from an understanding of how deep the hardware like how important our hardware and our supply chain and the code running on firmware and hardware and the chips in between those actually becomes uh, as we move forward. Like, yeah, we're way up here in like layer past layer seven. Sometimes we're getting, you know, maybe get down to layer three, but really some of the most important security aspects that we're relying on is much, much lower than that and much more complicated. So the people doing these and the chips and hardware that we're running this stuff on, uh, becomes a valuable and insightful place to even have a base level knowledge. Like even if you don't understand all of it, understanding what the risks are from a high level makes a big difference in, in how you evaluate your risk and where you're putting your data. Um, so the attack, one of the attacks against it um, is called SGX step. Uh, and there's a link to that GitHub repository that has uh, a very in-depth technical uh, description that, that that's one of the ones Tyler and I were like, what? Hold on, what are you trying to say? Um, uh, that describes it. And the other thing, um, so John Lucades, my coworker, was uh, the source that was trying to help me uh, understand it. He used to work for Intel, and he was saying an interesting thing about how AMD created this kind of enclave-like technology mm -hmm. and did it in a more basic way. Like he's like they basically took what they had. And manipulate it so they can encrypt RAM, like sections of memory, right? He's like, Intel took a different approach in that they created this enclave concept and built a lot of architecture around not just encrypted region of memory, but like these really like more complex sure. things that had specifications that was more in depth. He said over time... Intel realized that was too complex and like had attacks <laughs> against it. So they're simplifying it, going towards AMD's the, the model. AMD, model, AMD yep. is actually, he said, going in the opposite direction oh, and building in more complexity. So they're like both going in, like they'll meet each other somewhere, maybe in the middle, uh, was kind of his uh, prediction. So I thought that was That'll an be interesting. interesting tidbit, too. 
Yeah, I thought we did back a good, to the I, real world. Yeah, I thought, I thought we, we did, did a, a good pretty, job. Pretty good job of that. Yeah, I mean, someone, someone's going to correct us, but that's okay. Lucadis is going to be like, so really, you should. We we need to have some educational More, moments. And yes. We're just going to have some talks this yes. week. Yeah, uh, fifty lashes. Love you, John. Way. Sorry, I got it wrong. But I think um, <laughs> next week, bringing some of my coworkers on the show before. Uh, oh, are we doing the F five stuff next week? Uh, no, but no. I do have Nate. Uh, tentatively scheduled for a date in December to talk about the thing that no, we can't talk about. Um, oh. and, that, but, and he should also talk about his F5 blog post, and you should read yeah. the F5 blog post, which was really good. Um, but I He's think, been in, in the works for a while. Yeah, that is your story number 17, correct, Paul? Yes. Also coming up, speaking of, like, kind of related to the SGX stuff, um, Jesse Michael, one of my other coworkers, mm. is coming on to talk about SMM and mm-hmm. UEFI vulnerabilities, which is another thing that's like, Oh my god! Like, hold on! I got like a lot of learning to do just to get to the point where I can understand some of these vulnerabilities. So Jesse's coming on to give us some of that background uh, and perhaps cover um, an article that just broke this morning. I didn't add it. Like, basically, I read it briefly today. My understanding is, um, ESET research team. I think ESET research team discovered that by manipulating UEFI variables, they could effectively turn off secure boot. Ooh. Now, UEFI variables are interesting because they're stored in NVRAM, which is an area in the BIOS not, region. Not part of the integrity check. Yes, because the user needs to be able to mm-hmm. manipulate and modify UEFI variables from the operating system, such as... Like the DBX is a variable that stores multiple values. When I need to update my revocation list for secure boot, I need to update Mm -hmm. a UEFI variable that stores multiple values that represent the hashes of software that shouldn't be trusted in the secure boot process. NVRAM set SSID Paul rocks. NVRAM is a concept we are are familiar with. with. In this region of NVRAM, there's lots more UEFI variables. It looked to me like what ESET figured out was like if you change this one, the next time you reboot effectively turns off secure boot. Did I get that right? Did anyone else read that in more in more detail? I didn't I didn't finish reading through the details on that, but that, that was the gist of what I had read. Moral of the story. Mechani- mechanisms changing variables. <clears throat> so for both to round this out, both SGX and this new UEFI uh, vulnerability, if you've got Lenovo laptops, uh, ThinkPads and such, the and you if you're running SGX there's a microcode update for SGX that will likely come down through a firmware update to fix some of the security shortcomings in SGX. Same thing for UEFI and the variable manipulation. You're going to have to apply a UEFI BIOS update uh, to fix those problems. You so, mean, you mean didn't, I, didn't I see a, a Lenovo driver being abused this week as well? Oh, and there was a Lenovo driver that was being abused as <laughs> no, well. That, like, just, again, it like, broke this morning and then, <laughs> yeah. Not Lenovo. Yes. Uh, or they, they're just getting picked on. Speaking of Lenovo, Lee, we need a story from you, my friend. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so actually what I thought was um, interesting in, in terms of uh, some of the stuff we've talked about in the past was that uh, the MyPipe, my number three story, where they're the uh, attackers are putting the wasp stealers into uh, Pi packages, sometimes corrupting the legitimate one, sometimes creating a, uh, a, um, a typo squatting version of a package, 
And uh, what I thought was really cool is that they modify the init.py or setup.py with a subtle URL that's obfuscated that then loads a bunch of pieces that assemble into the wasp stealer, which then when run, it, it goes out and finds browser passwords, crypto wallets, and interesting files with financial stuff in it. Um, but just the subtle way they, they stick it in there. I mean, you, you, you really got to look at it to find, to, to spot the, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the funky code. I mean, they did things like put 315 spaces in front of their code. So if you don't using line wrap, you won't know huh. that it's out there. And anyway, I just thought that was interesting and cool. Uh, Tyler, maybe you should use this to find your crypto wallet. <clears throat> maybe I wonder if we could negotiate and if they would split it with me, if they found it, I'll just put a bunch of stealers on my, all my information. They find it. See, we'll now, take the now, Red now Cross approach. Uh, They're good people. Just, just, they the will Cross split it with me. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> so well, one of the one one of the interesting things I was having a conversation with with somebody earlier today. Um, apparently, a lot of people are lazy about checking what package they're getting, the version mm. that it's not necessarily the a, a good version of something. No, which is why this shit works, and there's <laughs> been so much of it. Um. Because they don't say, hey, wait, that's not the version we qualified. Or they don't even bother to qualify the version of the package. They just run whatever the current one is. Yeah, but they run whatever and they're I wondered, to run. And I was just thinking with all the work, you know, Paul and others have done with in the, you know, with open source and stuff, if that really tracks or am I off the deep end there? It's it's interesting to, to think about because I had <clears throat> interesting supply chain concerns when I was updating my, my Linux systems. And it complained that a uh, signature had failed validation. On mm -hmm. libraries in PyPy, do they build in to the libraries? Or do you have to enable that? I know in Docker they had ways to verify, like the Docker images, right? There was sig some kind of signature verification. Hmm. In PyPy, now I'm, now I'm wondering. Because like when you were saying, Lee, like triggered the thought of I build my Python application. I'm including a dozen libraries. Um, some of that's done in the requirements file, right? So I could, mm -hmm. one approach to catch this is I pin the version number of every single library that I'm pulling in via my requirements. Sam's shaking his head because this is a lot of work, right? No. Not only is it a lot of work, but it means you'll be using out-of-date vulnerable stuff before long. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's not wrong. The other way is to eliminate... The, now, if I did that, I could go through each one of those versions <clears throat> manually or maybe with some automated tool and go, yep, like that version it's pulling down is good. Maybe I do my own signature verification or if I don't remember if PyPy has that or not or if it's optional. I go, yep, I'm pulling down you know, ABC library version one, two, three, and, and that's good. Then I need, then I need some other mechanism to, uh, on some other system to go, okay, there's 1.2.4. I go manually check that and go like, is the code good? Does it pass a signature test? I run it through some source, source code standards. Maybe I do some dynamic analysis, of my application with it. I look for outbound HTTP or, you know, HTTPS requests from it and go, wait, that wasn't there before. And then I go, all right, 1.2.4 is good, so I update my application. Now, I'm going to be running potentially, as Sam, you pointed out, in this model, 
an older version of a library for a longer period of time until I update it. The way that, that I did my Python project um, was I said requirements.txt always go pull the latest version. Every time a developer builds it, which was used for a long time was just me, and I would build it. And if something would break because a library updated, I would I would go fix that. I go, well, this release is going to take a little longer. Sorry, everyone. I can go fix a library dependency. Now, the danger in that is I'm just blindly taking in whatever software yep. is coming down in my open source mm-hmm. supply chain uh, unless I have some other kind of tooling that is identifying these vulnerabilities, software composition analysis, looking at known vulnerabilities, I like the ones that also do like some kind of static analysis. I like the ones that do dynamic analysis. Like yeah. there should be, and I'm sure it's like a commercial solution exists for this. Build and run it, unit, unit test my application with the libraries. Then when libraries update, you build that application again, go run through all of your unit tests and tell me what's what's different. Is there mm-hmm. a code path to change? Is there behavior that changed? I was like, is there a like outbound HTTP that is there now that wasn't there before that someone leaking out, you know, does Lee's description, right? I, I want to say, it, to me, I mean, just based on casual observation, it feels like there's open source projects that will do that as well. Mm, yeah, I agree. Because I, I, agree. But, yeah. because I think about some of the, the open source projects that I've used that have their ho- code hosted on GitHub and their their readme.md has a bunch of stuff about, hey, we, we built the latest version and it compiled successfully on this and mm-hmm. that and, you know, regression testing and all of this type mm-hmm. of stuff, and I'm like, well, that's cool. Yeah. Maybe so there's a hash. Yeah. Maybe there's a hash. I mean, if it's yeah. libraries, maybe, but maybe there's a hash. They're like, yeah. if you download this version, it should match this hash, which only gets you so far, right? Definitely, definitely use mm-hmm. that MD5 for those uh, versions. <laughs> yeah, unless you're Tom Liston, because every time his MD5 checks out. That's right. Uh, yeah. All the time. Always. All no matter what's been changed, the same MD5 sum. That's Tom. <laughs> Yep, that is Tom. Um, so yeah, that's a lot I just, of work. Like a, it is, and 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 I I I totally get it. I mean, I'd be probably the guy just like grabbing the latest version and crossing my fingers and going YOLO. Um, that's the YOLO approach. Most people <laughs> YOLO. Sam, Sam yeah. got a comment in there. What um, else are you going to do? I mean, yeah. I, I think anybody thinks about is whether it's going to work. Yes. And you just assume that the that the updates from a trusted source are okay. Otherwise, you will go mad. Well, yeah. I assume that their updates are going to break my code, and I'm going to yeah. be able to. Well, they might break it, but you don't think they're insecure. Yeah, usually. exactly. Yeah. Go, go exactly. mad, or we're already mad. Like that is definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, like, but, I, I kind of banked on the fact that it was going to break my code, and I stood a better chance of fixing it incrementally. So, like, since it was always updating, like, maybe once a week, I had some dependency that would break something or change something. I had to change something in my code, and that change wasn't too bad. However, Mm -hmm. if I let that go for six months or a year, then I update all my dependencies, then I'm like, oh, my God. Now I've got, like, an exponential, exponentially harder problem as a whole to solve because now I may go fix one dependency and change the code, but some other library changed. So, that thing that I changed breaks the other thing. Now I've just got like a rat's nest, uh, almost like cables that kind of get entwined in each other. If you just like keep letting it yeah. go, the, the nest just gets bigger and bigger and exponentially harder to solve. Yeah. Like like the server room Sam's been fixing. Yes. That's exactly it. Which is my <laughs> server room. Here I was going to say we gotta, it's time 
Tangled Christmas lights analogy. It's that time of year. Yes. It's oh. your Christmas lights. Yes. Dumb Christmas lights. We should talk about hey, URL scanning. Since, since we uh, we did a webinar on this like two years ago, like great, well-written article. Um, definitely not new. I don't know if they missed it, but this is a TTP that I'm kind of sad to see come back up because we still use it and it's getting burned again. But uh, URL scan uh, obviously has a bunch of stuff scanned with inside of it via APIs. And mm-hmm. with inside those scans, responses come back, and sometimes the automated scans from, say, your Edge firewall or security product, uh, some kind of Edge vendor, maybe load balancer, sends those off to the API for URL scan to validate and check. With inside of those, there's often sensitive keys, sessions, JWT, responses for logins, password changes. I mean, you name it, I've used it and abused it on URL scan. And Corey did that that uh, presentation for one of our conferences um maybe the first unlocked i don't remember mm. uh, but he uh he did this and demonstrated some very cool access to some very large organizations so the attack that i like again cool article <laughs> the attack that i like about this i'm glad you mentioned Corey had uh, presented this i forgot about that um <clears throat> was dumped that... it up on discord awesome thank you <laughs> the attack that i like is if i know that you've got a security product that's sending everything to url scan I somehow force or spoof a password reset so the user has to go do a you, password reset. You find a password reset in there. So I, I just look for, I have alerts set up in there trigger, for password you, reset. Yeah, but can't you trigger it? Like if I somehow trigger the user to do a password reset, maybe with a spoofed email or whatever, I'm like, hey, go reset your password. They go try and reset their password and it, it sends the link to URL scan and I'm kind of sitting there waiting for it and I raise condition and reset it was that the attack they described it was something like that so that's that's one of the attacks um i think the one that they had mentioned was similar to that but you can scan for with inside of url scan you can scan for those password resets and password reset session tokens or jwts we found a lot of jwts mm-hmm. that weren't secured properly or are still valid uh, and you can leverage those to initiate a password reset with that session token. So you start oh, the password gotcha. reset, you replace the to- you replace the JWT or session token with the valid one that was in the request. And because they're not doing validation properly or the timing was still right, you can still initiate one of those. But you can also do a lot of social engineering with URL scan, send those password resets and have those initiate to something that uh, is doing that and you're watching for it. So you can kind of man in the middle of that without having to have infrastructure for it. Mm, that's awesome. So, yeah, some cool stuff you can do with there. Again, really good article written. Uh, one of my favorite TTPs that we use on probably the daily. Uh, it, it is interesting. There's a lot of services like this that you have to think about that you may not even know. You're not actively putting URLs in or you're not actively scanning, but your security products yeah. are sending things to like virus total. Like I pull out sensitive documents all the time with proposals, or invoices, different numbers from virus total, just doing searches for for different pieces so you know knowing what your products are sending to third parties and vendors uh, is a, an important part of your business risk assessment and making sure you've got those locked down and and not using the defaults um i wanted to quickly mention hard user separation with nix os have you guys played with nix os the hell's nix nope. os okay that would be a no is that like linux <laughs> uh it is it's kind of like a a containerized Linux, so it's used to create reproducible uh, builds. Cubes. Yeah. Uh, 
<sighs> I, but I think the, the separation, I don't think you get quite the separation you would with cubes. You get more of a reproducible, deployable environment with NixOS versus a user separation. This article talks about user like separation. Mac OS. <laughs> 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 no, more like Nick, NixOS. You go read about it. NixOS. <laughs> <laughs> But this article I think we talks need about to put some decaf in there, Tyler. But to your point, yeah, though, never. <laughs> with Cubes OS <clears throat> as a model, that you can use Nix OS to create that separation. So you have it's like uses the the logical volume manager to create different volumes that are completely separate from each other, but use the same base OS. So you manage maintain like a, te- like a template. You manage and maintain the base OS, and you've got two completely separate enclaves as it were kind of like sgx um but on your disk so like you boot into your work computer and you can access your work stuff but you have to reboot into your user environment to access your user stuff but you maintain the same uh os interesting it was how to do that i thought it was pretty neat huh so have you played with Hmm. nix os or any of this stuff no but have you uh this sounds a lot like cubes What's the difference between this and cubes? I don't know. It's a good question. It's called NixOS and not cubes. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> there's that, yeah. Well, now we all have homework. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, bring your own domain controller. This is re- this is another one where we're like, yeah. Tyler's going to tell me it's not what? new. Like he's he's going to tell was, you it's not new because I can remember it's not he, new. he and Skip Duckwall doing this on site at a pen test. I don't know how long ago, and I was like, oh, 2014. That was sexy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I remember this. Yeah. I, when I read this, I'm like, this is definitely not new. Like, I've heard of this. I, is it a vector? I mean, basically, you, you put a new domain controller. Like a technique. Yeah. Describe the technique. What would you do? You bring, oh, yeah. bring, how do you bring check the own? technique? Yeah, check the technique. So once once you once you get domain admin, you so the way that they're describing it and the way that they're doing it is once you get domain admin, you're essentially leveraging Windows and uh, the Windows built-in RSAT tools in order to create a domain controller, leveraging hopefully a similar name if you got good opsec. Uh, after you do some recon, then you do a promotion of that domain controller in order to uh, get the replication to happen and once the domain controller's done the replication you take the domain controller offline and then you extract the ntds.dit file uh, using the GUI and an offline like VM. Now this is the most manual way physically possible to do this and there are a million other ways to do this with uh, different curb libraries in Linux, some scripting, you can do it with Windows and PowerShell uh, via uh, answer files and deployment guides uh, to build all the substandard up and tear it down very quickly, uh, as well as just force a replication. But hold on, uh, via question. The domain controller. You said you are domain admin in the domain that you're attacking. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, in order we... to do this, you have to be able to have replication rights. But which, if you're already the domain admin, why couldn't you just access the NT? What was yes, the file? The the, NTDS.dit. The, it contains mm-hmm. all the AD credentials, basically, right? Correct. So the the reason that they highlighted this and they thought this was a novel attack was, and again, to be fair, it is not as widely used and is much more OPSEC safe. So you don't end up having to connect to a domain controller, which is often logged, uh, mm-hmm. very closely watched. 
you're not touching an ntds.dit file on the domain controller, which is heavily logged, watch, yep. known yep. behavior. You're not doing something like DC sync, which is that replication traffic uh, and tools such as Mimikatz, there's many others. Uh, those tools are often flagged and that, that traffic is well-known and that behavior is well-known. So you're leveraging the replication between domain controllers, which is a standard process that Active Directory is doing continuously mm-hmm. uh, in order to get that NTDS.dit on a system that you control where there's not visibility, not right. EDR, mm-hmm. and potentially okay. not touching files that are going to send alerts yeah. to the defensive team. Yeah, but I, wouldn't the environment know that there was a new domain controller introduced that was part of replication, or is that not as heavily scrutinized, basically, what you're saying? That's not as heavily scrutinized, and that's not something in AD that is often looked at. You should be looking at that 100%, mm-hmm. and <laughs> that not, is something but, yeah. that most good places are. <laughs> yeah. and, and to Tyler and Paul, both to sort of your points, I, I think what I gathered out of this article was that, hey, you know, this a technique is not old, but it is not very well documented. And I think when I go into talking with folks that are looking to break into the industry or to get their start in cybersecurity, this article nails what I tell many of those folks. Go publish something. Even if it is new to you, go document it. Go do the process. Go document what you've learned. Even if a thousand people have done it before you. Because you may have that one thing that you figured out to make it faster, better, longer, uncut. You may have a really great explanation of it. You may have a great explanation. And in this case, like this is a thing that's been around for a long time. And experts like Tyler and Skip Duckwall have been doing it for a long time. But we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. And folks have been doing it for a long time. And like, here you are. You know, this potentially newcomer to the industry that have figured this out and can talk about it and can relate this story and learn some writing. Yeah. This, this. But also help other people too. Like I got this. I got um, like some praise early in my career because I described what a buffer overflow was in a paper. And like I wasn't the first person to describe that by far. Right. But they were like, hey. You had a different perspective. They were like, hey, that was a pretty good description of it and i'm like Mm -hmm. hey you know what if someone reads that and i have allowed like reading my paper gives them the aha moment of how it works it was worth that's a win it was worth it pretty cool exactly same thing like different perspective adding some documentation to the community where you know not a lot of documentation exists even though you think it's old still write it up Sometimes, yeah. sometimes you're letting the cat out of the bag too. Like a lot of us old timers and or those that are OPSEC or, or doing things for a long time, like we don't talk about our techniques. We don't burn stuff, you know, unless it's something that we're providing to the community. So if you let it out, then it enables us to speak about it. And we're probably the lazy ones that should have done it and we didn't. Yep. So I think it is, it again, the URL scan thing that was old and yet we didn't talk about it all that much. Like it didn't get prolific. Like that was the, that was the secret yeah. sauce, right? Like, right. you, you can talk that your secret mm. sauce has tomatoes and basil mm-hmm. and you know pepper mm-hmm. and some you know some you know some fresh peppers and maybe a little you know pork sausage, but you don't tell them that the real secret is chocolate. Mm. Please, I mean, you don't no, put, no, you don't you, put I know you don't. No, okay. I don't. I do not good put chocolate Lord. in my gravy. But I'm just using that as an example. You put a good pork spare rib. Right? Got to have a bone. Oh, that's, a bone? No, like all the bones. All the, yes, yes. <laughs> you, yeah, you don't that's put where the good por- flavor comes from. You don't put the pork spare rib. No, you put the whole rack of spare ribs and a couple of T-bones. 
Yes. With the bones. With mm. the bones. That's important. <laughs> and fresh basil. It has to be fresh yes. basil. Yes. And no, a, no, a, that dried a, stuff. I mean, add an alternative, dried basil, but basil that came out of your garden that you dried yourself. Yeah, that works too. I'd, I'd accept that. Oh. that. That's an acceptable. You can, ta- you can taste the love. You got to taste the love. I mean, I mean, it really is a... <laughs> Lee's going... A bit, a bit, a bit, but... <laughs> no. Trying nice, not to drool no. on my microphone. <laughs> nice dry red dry red wine, Lee. That's important, Ooh, too. yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Both in, in the sauce and to drink with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the sauce and for the sauce. Yeah, and for the cook. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Little Chianti and fava beans. Sorry. Yes. What were we talking about now? That's, yeah, now, that I've like, given so you, the, like, the, maybe... 60% of our recipe for Sunday gravy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So so one of the things, you know, you were talking about the secret sauce. This particular write-up not only talks about, you know, how to do this, but also it talks about some of the landmines Tyler described about, you know, how not to trip over him. And, you know, hey, they're looking for this, not this, so do it this way so you don't get mm-hmm. so you don't get caught as easily. Uh, that's the, the real value. I mean, f- from an educational perspective, it much more uh becomes much more valuable a write-up than if i if somebody just told me how to do this um, um yeah <clears throat> sorry while we have sam here because i don't know if sam, yeah. ha- sam has a hard stop at a certain time hmm. sometimes you do sam and be, i want to be respectful of yeah. your time um i uh, my story number 10 and my story number 14 uh were ones i wanted your opinion on uh, everyone's opinion but i want to make sure sam weighs in on them so i guess we'll do number 10 first um this was a similar kind of article to what we were talking about you know this person was describing in languages what memory safety either exists or doesn't exist and it was nothing i mean it was nothing new it was a good kind of high level overview the value i got out of it was some of the references the author put in and the author put a reference to the sherry project and sherry what does Sherry stand for now? Oh, good Lord. This is what happens when I reference it and then I don't put... Um, this, was a cool, this was a cool project. Capability Hardware Enhanced Risk Instructions. Um, bunch of researchers from the University of Cambridge as well as Peter Newman from SRI International. Peter Newman happens to be on my list of guests that I want to have on this show to specifically talk about software security and memory safety. Newman? Newman. Uh, And Sherry is a joint research project um, that is a method for providing memory safety in C and C++. It has has gotten some widespread uh, adoption. Have you heard of this one before, Sam? No, I haven't heard of it. I know Microsoft did something like this. Mm. They had special libraries they added to C, C-driven languages to make them less dangerous. This but now they're talking about just moving to Rust. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, so Sherry is a scalable compartmentalization features enable fine-grained decomposition of operating system and application code to limit the effects of security vulnerabilities in ways not supported by current architectures. So like interesting, we talked about control flow enforcement, which is more like on the hardware side. This is more memory safety in the, uh, the language in higher up uh, in, in the stack, so to speak. Oh. 
Yeah, I think this kind of theoretical analysis will help guide the development of future tools. Mm. And I think they said there were some ARM... Uh, yeah, so uh, in January of this year, ARM has shipped its Sherry-enabled Marolo prototype processor. Oh, so there is a tie back to hardware uh, in their sock board. Uh, and you can read a blog about this at ARM and Microsoft. Hmm. And there was thoughts on it from Cambridge as well. And I want to say Peter Newman... No, maybe that was that was the next article. Sorry. Yeah. So something to dig into. I I thought it was pretty pretty cool. And again, I got that from someone that was writing like a high level description of like memory yeah. safety and languages. And I was like, oh, this is like a pretty cool this high, is, this you is know, great art. High level like, overview. But I, the, I was skimming real quick and I stopped somewhere in the middle and I'm like Oh. Like I didn't know like, uh, hold Oh on. Well, it's the reference to <laughs> to that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh, now, was, uh, um, the other one, uh, my story number 14. So, this is one. I did not read the original research. <sighs> I struggled to keep up with Port Swigger's, uh, the Daily Swig's analysis of it, which I, I have to give them uh, a world of credit because uh, John Leiden is the author of the Port Swigger article that read the in-depth uh, paper on uh, that relates to encryption and one-time use programs and wrote a blog article that summarizes it that is still a lot to take in. And so let's go through it. So <clears throat> one-time programs were originally presented uh, at a crypt the conference called Crypto in 2008. Um, a, they described a cryptographically obfuscated computer program that can be run only once special property that makes them useful for several several applications and usages. Um, so using cryptographic principles, their goal was to create a program that was enforced that you could only run it once. Mm. That w would, as they describe, take valid inputs, run once, and then you couldn't run it again. Turns out... Like, I, want my, I want my malware to do that. Right? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I think they talked about that at the end of this article, Tyler, is like the nefarious usages of it. Absolutely. I think... I want to say they also theorized about using blockchain technology um, <clears throat> for oh some my. of the immutable uh, nature of it as well. Now, but it turns out like this is really hard yeah. uh, thing to do. So uh, <laughs> the uh, original idea... Uh, the, so wait, the run once requirement runs into trouble because it would be trivial to install a run once only program on multiple virtual machines trying yeah. each one with different inputs mm. which violates the whole premise of the technology so then the idea was to only allow the secret program to run if accompanied by a physical token that somehow enforced the one time rule for running the copy of the secret program that Alice had sent to Bob huh. however no such tokens were ever made and the whole idea, I love this part, because this is like a, like a history, like I feel like yeah. you've seen this like in the movies. And the whole idea was laid dormant for over a decade. Like it was buried in the ground, like some archaeologist yep. dug it up 10 but years it, later. It was in a floor safe, wrapped in blankets, yeah, exactly. in, tin, in, tin, in, the, in yeah. the bathroom. Right. Yep. You know, right, SGX. Right, right next to Tyler's uh, USB thumb drive with the, <laughs> the crypto wallet on it. I, there is a relationship. That it, so Matthew Green who is on my list of researchers to bring on the show, who is a very prolific um, researcher on the topic of uh, encryption and cryptography. Um, it relates it back to SGX. He has a quote and it mentions SGX, Tyler, which, which is interesting. Um, so 
John Hopkins University and NTT researchers now laid the groundwork for a possibility to build one-time use programs. So they've hacked the counter lockbox technology that exists on smartphones. Counter lockbox is protecting an encryption key under a user-specified password, enforcing a limited number of incorrect password guesses, mm-hmm. typically 10, before protection is um, erased. Hardware security module in smartphones provides the needed base functionality, but needs to be wrapped around technology that prevents Bob from attempting to cheat the system. That was the focus of their research. Mm. Kind of interesting. Yeah, then I, they talk about like how it could be expensive to, like processor intensive to, yeah. to do this. <coughs> I, I, <coughs> it could I lo- be costly. I love the final quote here that they've built a form of memory device or token that spits out and erases secret keys when asked. Unfortunately, it takes hundreds of lockboxes, that methodology for erasing devices when too many guesses have done, to make this construction. At least 256 lockboxes for 128-bit secret. So they're splitting up the key into the different lockboxes, it sounds like? Sounds like it. Matthew Green. Go ahead, Sam. uh, You know, you're right about Matthew Green. He's awesome. You should totally have him on. Yes. But this, um, you know, I don't know... But I don't know much about this particular thing you're talking about here. I read an article about it, and just sounds theoretical and very impractical. But you know, quantum key distribution does this essentially. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I mean, quantum key distribution sends a cryptographic key through a fiber optic cable with one photon carrying two bits of information. And from the way quantum mechanic works, you can be sure when you receive the key that nobody else read it, hmm. because <laughs> measuring it destroys it. So it accomplishes oh. essentially this: you can only read it once and when you read it it is irretrievably destroyed so if you get it and then verify it by sending like a hash back then you know that no attacker got it so they could use principles in quantum cryptography to accomplish this yeah this is actually technically not quantum cryptography it's quantum key distribution Mm -hmm. and it's a way to distribute to send a key over an insecure channel and have 100 percent knowledge of whether it arrived intact or not Hmm. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, and that, those things are for sale. They've been selling them for about ten years. Hmm. They're in use. You can buy them. Wow. And they're probably not cheap. Yeah, I don't know how cheap they are, but I know they've got them to run for a few hundred miles, and some banks are using them. It's uh, you know the current technique we use is you use public key encryption to encrypt a private key, which you then send over an insecure channel. But this way, you do not need to use the public key encryption. You just send the private key directly through a cable, and you use the laws of physics to ensure that nobody else is getting it. Yeah, Matthew mm. Green was talking about this concept of tamper-proof hardware, not in the quantum sense, but you know he was mentioning that tamper-proof hardware would require a token with a very powerful and expensive, not to mention complex general-purpose CPU that he referenced in his blog post, which I haven't read that, but like it starts going on rabbit holes. So Matthew Green made a blog post about this uh, particular topic. Um, he said this would be costly and worse and would embed a large attack software and hardware attack surface, something mm-hmm. we have learned a lot about recently thanks to Intel's SGX. So we come full circle, <laughs> Tyler. Yeah. Uh, the more complex, the more mm. opportunities. Att- the more attack surface that you have. Like It's, it's yeah. a very good observation. Yeah. And then they do talk about this, how it plays into like ransomware was the, the last part of this article, Tyler, to your point of like, I want my malware to do this. This would be useful to an attacker. Hmm. Yes. I think there's, there's a lot of theoretical things here that does not take 
too much imagination to see mm. this integrating itself. I mean, we're already doing a lot of this with uh, cryptographic keying, like one-way symmetric keys for uh, environments based off of variables, based off of things that only happen on certain machines. Uh, we do this for evasion and, and getting out of sandboxes, ensuring that we're not in a sandbox or a VM. Uh, so there's some of this happening, but the the quantum and, and the one-time cryptographic thing is kind of like the the holy grail of of malware and the ability to not have to worry about signature-based uh, deployments and having to re-engineer your uh, your malware so frequently because of signature-based uh, detections. I want to jump to higher up the stack inside of Java. Speaking of kind of an enclave, uh, wait, as it Java? were. Java. Java. So my story number eleven. Yes. Okay. When I read, read when I read this, I was read back to. You just want to view the PHP source. You do view source, right? Like seriously, <laughs> this thing solves that problem. This solves Paul, that problem. Right? It like, solves this problem. I thought of you, my friend. <laughs> um, th- thanks. This one. <laughs> this is very. You're never gonna live that down. I'm never gonna live it down. <laughs> we need to pull the clip of that. Someone needs to find that. Uh, we need to go read it. I want to. I, I will. That. I will fully admit. I've said my share of stupid shit on this show, but. But that particular uh, particular stupid shit thing I said keeps coming up, and <laughs> I I want to listen to it. And I want to make sure we run a correction for it. <laughs> oh, I that? think we did run a correction the week after we did, when yeah. we got called out years ago. Um. Oh. So this article was interesting. Very well written, um, describing how Java web applications like interact or don't interact with the file or have a different way of interacting with the file system. So. Yeah. Due to their architecture, Java web applications have a significant security advantage. Their file system access is inherently more secure than, say, that of a PHP application running on Apache. Since Java applications are usually packaged as servlets, the application treats the application context root as the only file system it can access. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Think about that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. I like that. Good description. Yeah. In most cases, there is simply no way for an attacker to reach the underlying file system unless this is explicitly done in application code by using absolute paths and suitable access control, which we think about in the PHP example, right? The local file inclusion attacks are yep. a thing because there is no uh, none of no that separation. separation right. right. I thought it was good. Um, <clears throat> it can easily be blindsided by using the secure by design characteristics of Java. So what happens is, the article states, many developers assume that since you cannot reach files in the underlying operating system, there's no need to sanitize code or use input validation to protect against potential path traversal attacks. Mm, right. So these Java servlets are running in the matrix. Correct. And they, and they don't know that the the, the that architect and all these other places exist because they haven't been told that they, they exist. I run my code in the matrix. I'm running a servlet. Yeah. It runs in the server. It's in this kind of protected thing. So therefore, I don't need to sanitize input. But what happens is you can enumerate all sorts of goodies inside the Java application, enumerate the Java application, which ultimately leads to an attacker downloading the entire application and decompiling it, which is what they show mm. in the article. So you get to download the matrix yes. and disassemble yeah. it. Disassemble it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To find that the woodman in a red dress is really an agent. Correct. Yeah, well, we did take the blue pill, didn't we? Oh, and they released a tool for doing this uh, on GitHub. Uh, yeah. Web uh, in what is it called? Path Trav. Yes. 
because uh, a lot of what you're enumerating are um, like file structure files that they do give you access to within the application that are like web.xml, manifest.mf. That basically gives you a map. You can use that map to basically download the Java application. Once you download the Java application, you can pretty easily decompile it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, find all sorts of fun. I'm sure that there's a lot of it depends in there, I would imagine. Um, but really, really great article. Mm-hmm. Like next time mm-hmm. you come up against a Java application. Hmm. Although I'm sure a lot of web app testers, like this is probably nothing new. Again, back to our nothing new theme. I'm sure this was this was this has always been a thing. Um, now you just have a, a cool tool and description for it. Let's see. Okay, going down the list, Intel ME enabled uh, must be enabled for updating Arc graphics cards. So this is kind of interesting. Intel, I don't know how well you track like graphics cards and stuff. Intel is coming out. I don't. know. Can you buy these yet? Intel's Arc graphics cards. I think you can. They're very expensive, or they were just R and D or, or um, developer ones. It's, I know I've seen some. It's like very. It's like very limited. This isn't. <clears throat> I'm gonna need some more ice to talk about this mm. story. Spending money. Yeah. This isn't widespread <laughs> in the. Why? Why do you need ice? In the market. Um, however, I, I I like that. I I believe that are the Linux drivers open source. For Intel Arc graphics. I think mm. that they they have drawn they were home. open source what, or they what? were released. Yeah. There was a Sorry. tool for them. Yeah, so Intel Arc Graphics running on fully open source Linux drivers. So Intel has, yes. wor- I believe, worked with the community to enable this to happen. This is why I was excited. Like, security aside, I'm happy as a Linux user when I can get hardware that the manufacturer has released open source code so we can tweak it and compile it with the kernel so like it works good i can have a graphics card that works good on my system as, oppo- I can have as it, opposed to works really good as opposed to <laughs> if i were to run windows and it would work just fine or <laughs> the other thing where what doesn't work just fine where it's an nvidia graphics yeah. card and i've got in you know binary blobs or i've got some hack in novea which is the open source thing <sighs> or i'm running you know the other i think there's another i think novea is different from like the Traditional open source drivers for for uh, NVIDIA graphics cards, and it doesn't work really well. But Intel now has a graphics card, like not the one on the chip. Sorry, Larry. It's okay. Um, No worries. Like not the one on the chip, which does work very well, by the way, uh, in in Linux. Um, Not as powerful, obviously. So, like for me, like I'm like this is cool. I can have a graphics card. It's made by Intel. They're pretty good at making chips. And in graphics cards and stuff, like they haven't had a, this is their first like actual card offering, but they've got a lot of expertise and knowledge in, in this subject area. The, the driver's open source for Linux. This could be, I don't do a whole lot of gaming. Like I think the NVIDIA cards are still better at gaming than this particular card, although they're kind of spinning it as a, a, a gaming card. But in order to, this is where the security aspect comes in. Hey Lee, wake up. In order, <laughs> this is the exciting part, Lee. In order to update the firmware on the graphics card, 
you have to have an Intel CPU that runs Intel ME because they're using Intel ME to update said firmware on the graphics oh, card. So, now, I don't think Intel's <laughs> going to leave it this way forever. I, hope I think if I'm Intel and I'm making a graphics card, I want as many freaking people <laughs> on the planet to buy this graphics card as possible. Yep. And I shouldn't give two shits if you've got an AMD CPU, you've got an Intel CPU, or whatever. Whatever. I want to sell more graphics cards. I mean, I also want to sell more Intel processors, but I don't think I want to cripple it <laughs> to only being with Intel processors. Yeah. So does, hopefully it, does that also fixed. mean more people more people are looking at the Intel ME and how that update process happens and how that channel to the graphics card is interacting with firmware updates? You know, Tyler, <laughs> I was asked today, <laughs> it, I've been working at Eclipsium since June, like what was my biggest realization, right? Now that I've, I've delved into the firmware security in the context of PC servers and laptops and have had uh, awesome coworkers to have these conversations with about how all this stuff works, what all these vulnerabilities are, and, and go through the security research. What was my biggest realization? For me, it was Intel ME. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. Like one, it's in every friggin' Intel CPU or Intel uh, platform since 2006. It's got its own CPU, some dedicated RAM, dedicated storage space in the Spy Flash, it's responsible for more than just management, right? It's responsible for things like updating firmware on graphics cards. It's responsible for flipping fuses in the manufacturing process, in the OEM process, right? It, it plays a role in, in these core hardware security protections that it makes it very interesting. It's also got the active management technology, which could be a vector. That to me was, was interesting. And I worry for security's sake, not so much with this particular instance, but I worry for security's sake that you run, you paint yourself into a, not you, you didn't, the vendor painted you into a, the series, the supply chain paints you into a corner that you can't update firmware because you don't have the right series of hardware and software components tools. and tools to update. It. For example, I run Linux. I have an update for Intel ME. <coughs> I can't update Intel ME unless I have Windows because that's the only tool my OEM provides to update my Intel ME. Yeah. This, uh, this was a, a common thread that I saw. Uh, you know, a member of the Drop community. Uh, and yeah. They announced a new keyboard. And I'm like, oh, that that keyboard looks awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy that. And I realized, like, oh, it's software updatable. I'm like, with what? Because half half the time it is some crappy windows app and it's not the open source qmk stuff and sure with a, enough with a driver with a, a boatload of access to, to and to sure and sure right. enough and my so my question to the community as part of this drop was is it updatable via some non-crappy windows app and qm and works with qmk mm. um and turns out doing a little bit more digging that i shouldn't have had to do they should have talked about it in the drop that it is a windows app but it's arguably not a shitty Windows app. Mm -hmm. It's still a Windows app, though, and no. 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 Probably. I'm, I'm waiting for the day when ransomware is able to send updates via Intel ME or hardware updates and <laughs> oh, hold shit. your hardware no. firmware ransom. Tyler, stop giving that them ideas. Nice, expensive arc. <laughs> well, because the other thing about the ME is that <clears throat> it's at ring minus three. Like, it, it mm -hmm. is arguably the most privileged 
way more than the OS. I mean, it is, it's even more privileged than the, the hardware and software for UEFI. It had, mm-hmm. has that level Oof. of access on your system. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Hey, before we go Once too much further, yeah. uh, I'd love to hear about Lee's story number two. The cyber attack at Boeing. Oh, I heard about this one. Um, that was a that was an um it was actually a subsidiary of Boeing's and they provide this uh they have been very vague about what the incident was, it's just some sort of attack. But it provides these uh critical updates for, for air mission bulletins to for managing the the plane and the rise it's taking and while there are other sources on there, it was really not clear that whether they just ran without the service while it was down, or they were able to switch over to their to the to the one provided by the the FAA or International Civil Aviation Org. Huh. Um, but what really caught my attention is I was reading down this article, uh, and it says that the aviation industry is getting hit by ransomware attacks to the tune of one a week, and that. Uh, um, year-over-year rise attacks on the aviation industry are up 530%. Holy crap. Yeah, I was like, what the hell? Considering, I mean, we've all had negative flying experience, but in all, all honesty, I would expect, you know, utter chaos at the gate, as it were. Not, things are actually pretty damn good at this level of attack. That's some mm-hmm. serious, uh, robust, built into their systems. I know it's worldwide. I get that. But still, that's a pretty impressive uh, resiliency story. Yeah. Um, I, I think one thing that might help would be if the, the Red Cross had some banners or something so that we wouldn't attack that would, the systems. We just put those banners on the plane so, electronics, they'll be fine. Or the cyber components of the all of the stuff for the FAA. and, uh, and the Pe- various... People's lives are at risk, Larry. I don't know. Fuck I with know. People's don't, lives. Yeah. don't hack me, bro. <laughs> Ah, sorry, I mean, sorry, Lee. I was reading into this and I'm like that. That, <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I'm. I'm. I, it. It's. You know. I. I. Like I said, I just find it amazing how much is is going on in terms of interruptions. But um, apparently, there. I had. I had a, a message that my phone ate that said there was more than just these two services impacted. There was actually more to it than that. Um, so the. Uh, but again. Didn't see a lot of canceling of flights or, or, or uh, you know, delays. In fact, hell, you know, I've just recently taken a few flights that were just smooth as silk. Yep. Um, Don't jinx yourself now. Too late. No. <laughs> <clears throat> Too late. I love the quote at the bottom. It says, we deployed patches. <laughs> Son of a... Wow. That says a lot. Uh... We, um, had, we had broken software, so we fixed it with more software. Yeah. <laughs> AKA, we well, had unpatched systems because we were able to patch those systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they had the Intel ME so they could patch the firmware. That's mm. right. Too yeah. soon? On the plane while it's live. Never too soon. <laughs> we had more hardware and software that can patch our hardware and software. Yeah. We liked hardware and software so much that we put more hardware and software in in your hardware and software. Mm-hmm. We put hard we put hardware and software in your fly by wire hardware and software. Mm. And we made the plane fly, fly sideways. Yay! Well, I've 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 got a 
a friend whose son is a is a is a pilot for for a commercial airline, and uh, he switched from flying the the prop jobs, the jets. And while he gets more money flying a jet, he had more. He actually got to fly the prop jobs. The others, you're kind of <laughs> on autopilot. You're the operator, so to speak, not the pilot so yeah. much, right? Right. Mm. Which means, what happens when it all breaks? Mm. Well, computers of, never fail, right? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. It's, Sometimes it, it, computers just freak out. Totally. <laughs> it, it reminds me of like, hey, uh, they're not so much a pilot, but they're an operator. It reminds me of uh, flying in the, the ride mission space at Epcot, where you go on that mission, and then you have you have uh, the engineer and the pilot and the navigator and the somebody else, and you're supposed to press these buttons to make things happen. But if you don't uh-huh. press the button, it happens anyways. <laughs> Wait, is that the Millennium Falcon ride? No, no, oh, no. Uh, Mission no, no, Space. No, 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 no. That's oh. it. That's at Epcot over near that's, the new uh, yeah. uh, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where basically it's a centrifuge and they spin you around. Oh, yeah. centrifuge one. But yeah. isn't there? There's yeah. like two different yep. rides. There, like one is more spinny than the yeah, other. Yeah, there's one more spinny and vomity, and then yeah. there's the, I did the less, the less spinny, spinny and vomity one. Yeah, it, it's a spinny ride. I can't do spinny rides. Yeah, so I, I did the less one. It was pretty spinny and vomity. Yep, I didn't vomit, but I was dizzy. Yep. It was pretty damn spinny. Yep, but uh, the Guardians, of the, Guardians of the Galaxy, though. Oh, I didn't. I haven't really done that. That's <clears throat> that's a whole different. That's a whole different level of fun. Oh yeah, up yep. and down. Oh no, different Guardians of the Galaxy ride from Disney World. Oh, to different Disneyland. one over there. That's right. Yeah, so uh, Disneyland is effectively uh, the same ride engine that you uh, for Tower of Terror. Correct. Disney World better music is a well. I don't know about that. Uh, the Disney World is an actual roller coaster that rotates in 360 degrees while you're riding on it. Yeah. So oh, you could be baby. so you could be going downhill and facing a 90 degrees to the right. So you could be falling left. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's. I thought it was going to be vomity, and it wasn't vomity, and mm. it was amazing. Okay. I get to ride three times. I got to ride. That. I, I get to ride three times. I'm I'm special. Nice. Yes. Because. <laughs> yes. um, Disney World still has Tower of Terror, if I remember right. Yep, Hollywood we Studios does. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I want to talk about supply chain. Cool. <laughs> Imagine that. Now, I might not be. Have talking... you heard about the issues with Pi Pi? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I might not be so, talking. So, do we have to talk about S bombs and F bombs while we're at it? Maybe. Uh, okay. Cool. This I'm article <clears throat> might have mentioned it. So, this article came from uh, Cisco Talos. Which article is yeah. this one? Uh, my story number 16. 16. Probably one of the better, Ooh. if not the best article that I've read on supply chain. Like, did a really good job. It's very, We talked about writing on both segments on this show. Very well written. I, I just want to read a quote from it. Because this is one of my yep. <clears throat> favorite quotes from it. So, why would an adversary spend weeks building out a cyber kill chain that includes custom malware in a complex social engineering campaign when they could compromise a software target, a vendor or partner in the supply chain, and have direct, trusted access to the primary target in a much shorter time. They won't. They will choose the path of least resistance. For this reason, the concept of an organization's attack surface has grown beyond its protected environment to include assets and entities that it does not own or control. To me, that last sentence is the best explanation 
Yep. Of what we're talking and, about and when we reference the supply and chain. Like you said, they don't mention firmware, but this speaks to me. I mean, <laughs> literally that speaks to me, that if they're not talking about firmware of some component <clears throat> in that supply chain, mm-hmm. they're talking about firmware of some component in that supply chain. Your attack surface has grown beyond its protected environment to include assets and entities that it does not own or control. Yep. So how do you fix that, though? Like, this is something I talked about today on, on the one of the conference talks I gave on ransomware. Like, supply chain and abusing business-to-business relationship is the new TTP, and this is business email compromise is actually more profitable and easier to do than doing full ransomware campaigns. So why would you not just attack business-to-business communications, inject yourself, and leverage that trust, or just the access that you gain from that trust? Mm. Like, how do you actually fix that? It depends on which aspect of supply chain we're talking about. It sounds like you're talking about, like, the target HVAC hack. I'm talking about any business email. Like, So talk about Uber, right? Like, your ability to inject yourself into conversations gain credentials and leverage those in order to get additional information for future attacks. That's something that not many people are talking about. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, yeah, they hacked one company. They got some info. They leaked it. They got caught. What about the access and the emails and the things that they did while they were on your network or your business to business communication, your vendors, your supply chain, your procurement, your HR and, uh, insurance companies, all of those communication channels that they've now opened up and preemptively or post uh, post discovery have sent on and maybe were not discovered and or now open up attack vectors to other verticals and other customers mm. that you don't have any effect or can't even notify due to litigation. So exploiting the relationships within your business. Correct. Process is so, about the only way you can fix this. Yeah. Process and policy. In that case, yes. Because I think supply chain is an an overloaded term for sure. This article mm-hmm, covers this article covers some of it, not all of it. As mm-hmm. Larry and I pointed out, we're like, sure. wait, what do you mean it doesn't cover firmware? Because I think assets and entities that you don't own or control. That, I think entities is relationship, but, as well. But I also think that assets that you don't own or control speaks to firmware and hardware. Yep, that's in, included. Yes. Not just in your laptop, PCs, and servers, but like any other device that you put on your network or that is in use in your organization in some capacity. Yep. Hey, you're going to put an IoT camera in your environment, and you built the software for that firmware, but that firmware has applications that are linking to specific libraries, and you were provided a driver for the CCD module for the camera from a third-party manufacturer that contracted that to India to develop that mm-hmm. thing, which used these other libraries and these other low-level code from the manufacturer. Like, you're talking get into five like, or six, seven levels deep. Like third-party, fourth-party, fifth-party fifth party. relationships that culminate to this device being in use by your organization. I'm not yep. even going to say on your network because it could be a laptop that some remote user is working, yep. some, some kind of device that ends up in your ecosystem that makes up ecosystem your organization. Ecosystem is a fantastic word for right. it. Right. The other one well, that think I... Th- about, oh, go ahead, Lee. I was going to say, think about that scenario of Larry's. Now, do you have you have that you know outsourced, outsourced, and whatever's in there. Do you have the expertise in-house to analyze that to determine if there was anything 
uh, malicious in there, uh, which I expect for many is no. I mean, yeah, but that's a great point. This is why I pick on Josh about the S bomb thing because I don't want to poo poo S bombs, but I think of S bombs as two different things. One is the S bomb that comes with whatever I've acquired that the yep. provider, manufacturer, software vendor has said, Hey, this is what in what is in the thing that you bought. Yep. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, great, but like I don't really trust you. Like to be like quite honest, like <laughs> right. I don't I only trust that but, so but I have what, a lower what, level So I, I have a high degree of trust in Yeah, that. so I bought this thing from you and gave him your mm-hmm. S bomb, but what did you buy that is in this product that I has hate, an S bomb? I hate the ingredient label analogy, but in this case, I, I I'll use it to describe why I don't trust the S bomb mm. that comes with whatever I've acquired. That's because if you've ever, like, raise your hand if you've ever read a label for something that's like, oh, it's, what's in it is like this thing and this thing and other herbs and spices. And I'm like, I, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen other herbs and spices, and I get the intellectual property, but what I, what I have seen is like, oh, this contains pasta and cheese, and then they break down cheese into their constituent components. Like, right. But like, they may also have, it, like, the... Other herbs and spices, spices yep. other artificial mm-hmm. flavors, other something that they're yep. very nonspecific about. And I'm like, yep. what, 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 what is that? Right. Exactly. Uh, that's just one thing that why I wouldn't trust it. The other S bomb is the one that I create to, to speak. What I believe Lee was just talking about is that I've acquired this thing that is ultimately an asset and I'm going to rip it apart with the help of you know, open source or commercial tools, I'm going to rip it apart, create my own S-bomb, mm-hmm. right? right? And I'm going to keep both of them, and that's going to keep my supplier in check, and that's going to keep the security of my own network, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. maybe they match and that's cool, but it's all about how I use that S-bomb. Mm-hmm. And really what I'm after is how do I use that S-bomb? Let's say mm-hmm. I've acquired 10,000 Dell laptops of a particular model. Mm-hmm. I want to get an S-bomb or information about the components inside of all those laptops. And I want to know, like, tell me about the ones that don't match, like which one of these don't match the other? Which one of these, like, things which one of these like Dell laptops has an Intel ME that says it's the same version, but the signature or hash of the firmware on three of them doesn't match the other 9,997 mm. of them. Yep. That's what I want to know. That's <clears throat> what I want out of an S-bomb. Yeah. I think one other one that, you know, one of the things I was saying, like, you know, your S, your dude, we heard you like S bombs. So we put S bombs in your S bombs. Yeah. Like this could very quickly turn into the, oh crap, the, 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 you know, how many layers does your S bomb go? Transient dependencies is what we're talking about. And, here. and mm-hmm. like, what, what was the movie? Um, starts with an I. But it's your Leonardo cheese. But that's your cheese. Goes, but that's your cheese. And, deep. That's your cheese and your ingredient. Oh, I include yeah. cheese. Well, what's in my cheese? Yeah. There's another list of ingredients. Yeah. And then like what's, one of well, them what's is in, milk. Like, well, where what's did in, you get where, your milk where, from? What's, right? in the, what's in the milk? Yep. So, uh, in, uh, inception. Like, yeah. how many layers does oh, your S bomb need to go? <clears throat> yeah. Correct. Yeah, it's a grain sprayed where the cow eats the the grain, and is that soil a regenerative regenerative? whatever eco-friendly yeah no we go biodiversity through, we go through with meat yeah like it's grain fed well what's in the grain and then mm-hmm. what are the components mm-hmm. of the what's in the grain yeah that what's feeds fertilizer the cows. what's sprayed mm-hmm. how is that cow feeling um, right i mean that, that's always dude, yeah. dude i had a plant-based burger the other day it was a delicious 
Do you, do you know what kind of plant it was made out of? Cow? Cow. Meat processing plant. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So My take on that, since we mentioned cooking in the show, <clears throat> and I've heard many experts <laughs> weigh in on this, and I've adopted this uh, kind of philosophy, that the meat that you eat, that animal should have one bad day in its life. Really one moment. A bad moment in that, in that like it should be grazing in the field, living its best life until it has one bad day. And what, kind of, and what bad day is that? When it gets slaughtered. That I, moment when it gets slaughtered. I, I'd argue that that shouldn't be a bad day. That it, no. shouldn't, it shouldn't even know it happens. And exactly. It should exactly. be. Hey. No. No. Like it's a switch. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna modify cows so that they're they're happy about being slaughtered, and then we're gonna further extend it so they'll actually be able to tell us that that's fine. Or we're just gonna piss off or, too many orgs today. Like we have, we already have Red Cross. Well, no, but the other flip side of that is, I believe it's uh, an Israeli company that is three D printing meat. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds weird when you, we talked about this on the show before, right? Like it sounds weird on the surface. Like no, they're actually like growing stem cells. Like it's three D sustainable food though. That's yeah, that's yep. the future. I mean, it's three D printed, it's but here. it's also grown from stem cells. So it's like this combination yeah. of like science, but three D printing science. is like a method to create like the three three D printing is just assembling the final product. Yes, and how they got that final. I can't decide how I feel about that. Yeah, and then how they got that product is you know you talk stem cells and all the the issues that are. They go along with sure. that politically and socially and ethically, and, and I'd rather not just go. Yeah, there. we don't necessarily go into that stuff on this yeah. show, but yep. yeah. Yeah. that's not going there. Oh. <laughs> but now think about the supply chain and the hacking potentials in there if that is the process and it's using technology <clears throat> and hackers get in there, change the recipe, hack mm-hmm. the 3D printer, what could you do? Kind Lee, of interesting. Lee had a comment. So... I was going to, going back to the supply chain, uh, back on, uh, it was, oh, it was before Halloween, the uh, NSA, CISA, ODNI published this enduring software, enduring software, enduring security framework, I can't speak, um, talking about that. And what I thought they did that was clever <clears throat> is they broke you know, the software supply chain concerns into into three pieces. You had the developer, you had the supplier or vendor, and then you had the consumer, as in your company or whatever, sure. you. Um, because they all have different aspects you got to worry about. And there was including some parts of that where you really, you, you got to hold that supplier um, accountable for making sure they're supplying, you know, genuine, good, updated products from reputable sources. Oh, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Good mm. point, Lee. I want to go back to the article. <clears throat> Two things. One, Craig Jackson, Alexis Merritt are the authors of this article. Fantastic job. Well done. Like, <laughs> extremely awesome. The other, to speak to your point, Lee, there's another quote that I pulled from the article that also kind of speaks to what Larry was saying about the uh, transient kind of dependencies. They mm-hmm. articulated this very well. Yeah. They state visibility beyond that first degree of separation begins to get hazy and an organization may not have knowledge of its supply chain at all beyond the second degree of separation. This leaves security teams with the elusive task of managing a set of risks 
about which little is known. Mm-hmm. While that last yeah. sentence leaves security teams with the elusive task of managing a set of risk about which little is known, that's the problem. When we talk about Bingo. the supply chain inside the supply chain inside the supply, supply chain, chain, the, the uh, um, an inception analogy. You tap, 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 wake up. Mm-hmm. Top is still spinning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or Exa- Exactly. Not. The top is still spinning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. That is an amazing... For, if you haven't seen Inception... Oh, great movie. A, an amazing movie. Um, you know, I argue that, you know, you take the Matrix trilogy now for... Um, and you think about... But you, have you seen it on weed, man? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. But have you seen it on weed? <laughs> and you think about how deep that story goes and how many analogies... Goes deep, man. And, and, uh, totally, you should see it on weed. Do the same for Inception. Go see it on weed. I mean, but like, there's so much there, and so many analogies to to and and parallels to to other things. Amazing, amazing stuff. Amazing story. Yeah. Um, pwned balancers commandeering F5 and Citrix for persistent access in C2. Uh, this comes from one of my coworkers. I had the honor and the privilege of uh, being Nace copy editor on this article, so. Uh, I read every single line and was just, I was impressed. I was like, Nate, uh, like you did some awesome research here, man. Like this is really cool. Uh, the d- basic- d- disclosure notice, <laughs> this article written by Eclipsium that owns <clears throat> Paul Stern. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, but this uh, research is like very independent, right? Like it's, yeah, it's I, I mean, to- it, totally. Nate was like, basically there are threat actors that attack some load balancers and... Like, what if they were to actually really try to be persistent? Mm. And Nate's like, what, what would that look like? So Nate set out and was like, all right, well, like on F5, I, it's a, basically it's a Linux-based kind of firmware mm-hmm. system. When we think about, I feel like the term network appliance is somewhat dated, but I still feel like that's a category of devices that you have in your network. Like, you've got yeah. load balancers, mm-hmm. VPN concentrators... That's an appliance. Firewall and appliances, a, backup appliances. Yeah, like I mean, we still have appliances. Like, I mean, it's like a dishwasher. It's an appliance. We still have appliances. Oh. <clears throat> yes, we have the cloud, and there are ways to do this in the cloud. But we still have a a lot but, of but, stuff that but represents. But you, you have an appliance in the cloud. It's someone else's dishwasher. Pretty much. I mean, there is a, a, a legit way to like spin this up in the cloud. But and so, like, I think of these network-based appliances as largely being Linux-based operating systems or Linux-based firmware, right? That kind of mm-hmm. treats it, it's more like firmware in that they're packaging up the operating system, the file system, and the configuration all mm-hmm. in one like neat little package. And Nate was like, oh, well, like, what if I were to get inside of the like backup for one of these and persist inside of there? Like what scripts would they run how do I get myself inside of the, uh, I've applied an update to this appliance, but I'm able to put myself back into the updated version of this appliance so I can persist through essentially a firmware update. Hmm. Right? Think about in Linksys routers, where would we hide? We'd probably hide in NVRAM to yep. go, hey, if there's new firmware going on, it, that firmware is going to read from NVRAM. Yep. Guess what? They're going to read my script, which gets inserted inside of every single firmware image that gets implanted on the device. Yep. Essentially, like, like, the, I'm, I'm the thinking, gist of what Nate was talking about. Like, in this I'm, post. Try, I'm trying to think back, like, because it's been a long time. <clears throat> like, 
were there components of startup that were stored in NVRAM about like what services you should run and maybe some scripts? Mm-hmm. It's been so yeah. long. I mean, the answer is it depends, probably. Right. No, I don't wear them. Yeah. <laughs> that but. too. But yeah, but. <laughs> this, this research was ter- terrifying because these particular devices are used in large organizations and enterprises and sit on the edge. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is this was some of the coolest research I've seen in a long time. He basically leveraged vulnerabilities since like 2020, went through those, found places where startup scripts um, execute code, found a way to implant those execute codes, and then have almost a it, it's almost like a trigger bit or or some of the old like kernel level rootkit, a, a ping bit where you can send a syslog or a fail to ban message and get the implant to activate and make sure that the script is running in memory. So and one of the really good OPSEC, really good techniques. It was it was amazing research. Yeah. I've been one of the other technical things from time. this from this article, Tyler, that you somehow reminded me of was that in a, on a, an appliance you've got a management network, right? Like management mm-hmm. networking, and you've got like operational networking. Like there's the I'm load balancing traffic on these networks, and maybe the the other network infrastructure management interface is is just that but like there was like failover like the routing table worked such that if i put my implant in there and the management interface wasn't necessarily internet routable it would use the like load balance networking <laughs> to route my c2 traffic he's like so like this is great like there's complete failover in this like as long as somewhere on this device that has when, access to the internet, I'm going to get out. Like, oh, I can't get out to the internet over there, so I'm going to get out to the internet over there. Basically. When One of the most elegant... Much. Yeah, the most elegant attacks on a device that is probably the most useful device from an attack standpoint exposed to the internet. Like, it, it is a recipe for all of the best things in, in C2. And he did a great job, like, making it all come together using off-the-shelf commodity C2, leveraging packages that are standard installs, like all the things that you just, you want to see in a well-written article that like exposes something that is a huge risk that just people aren't talking about. Like you look back to your, uh, your DDWRT days and, and the Linux routers and IOT malware and botnets right now and mm-hmm. how they were leveraging those to uh, mask traffic and hide C2 and route. Tra- I mean, the NSA was using those to route traffic through for attacks against mm-hmm. different countries. Like, this is not oh, new, the other, but, but the, these are new devices. So these the are other funny cool. thing, too, about Nate's research was he was like, how do I figure out, like, how all this stuff works and how it pull off this attack? Like, oh, I'll yeah. just go read the vendor's documentation. And guess what? <laughs> like, the vendor's <laughs> documentation basically gives me a map of how it would pull off this attack. Like, oh, like, th- like basically, Nate was like, I read the manual. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just gotta read the manual. Uh, RTFM, mm-hmm. read the fine Damn manual. Mm-hmm. And I, I was sending, I sent Nate a funny meme about reading the manual that deserves to be read on this show. And if I can go back, oh, the instruction manual? You mean the manufacturer's opinion? <laughs> And it's like the boxing guy, right? Like, oh my God. In the, in the, in the, Holy crap. <laughs> Dude. I was like, I get, when I was copy editing it for Nate, I couldn't figure out, like, like it doesn't give you, when I'm, you're commenting yeah. on someone's document, like in Google Drive, it, it, you can't put an image inside of a comment. 
oh. at least like I, I didn't spend the time to like go read if you could do that or not. So I just sent it to him in Slack, but that was the image that I sent him. I'm like, since you can't leave him images and comments that I could figure out, like this is in reference to your part where you talk about reading the manufacturer's documentation. Dude, I, I hate to say that, but you know, you, you, <clears throat> I, I think, and the listeners of the show have known my sense of humor mm-hmm. and my sense of humor would have been, I would edit the document to put that in the damn document. You should totally use this meme. Like, uh, right now. like that's, that fits. Like I, I hate that memes have, I mean, I hate, and I love that memes have been language of our culture. And I've taken the advice for Josh Wright for so many years writing content for Sans is that no, no, no memes. And the latest Sans Sex 617 update has a meme in it. Like we, we, had, we had to break that mold because the meme is true and it's right and it's it's spot on. My uh, oh, the question. I think it was my first oh. presentation for Eclipsium on the meme front uh, is my story number thirteen. So oh, quick, real quick, Lee had a comment there. Go ahead, Lee. So I want to know when you're going to get a meme from Josh. You put in courseware. Oh. Was that mean? No, no. That's a that's a that's called challenge accepted. Mm-hmm. Like, that's gonna be tough. Like, yeah, well, that, yeah. You gotta well, be you gotta I, meme, I, meme appropriately. Yep. It's, I know somebody will give him a hard time if you pull it off. You. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yep. So the the uh, the meme thing's pretty funny because the first presentation that I created when I was at Eclipsium is, um firmware enumeration using open source tools yeah uh and i updated that presentation and presented it to the black hills information security um audience on one of their webcasts um last week yeah last week i'm sorry i missed it and that is uh well if you missed it story number 13 takes you right to the youtube that's that's awesome i I mean i'm sorry i missed it i mean it was literally my first week at a new company so i I, I got an excuse right yeah so i mean (laughs) You should in your line of work, certainly now, Larry, right? Um, go check that out. Uh, I covered a lot of ground. Like, yep. I probably had I had to go fast because of the amount of sure. material. Like, I probably and, and should have done two, two hours as opposed to one because I cover mm. uh, Secure Boot, Intel ME, and Spy Flash protections. And an hour is... As I've learned, not enough to oh. truly dig into all three of those. You should have areas. had an hour for each one of those. Yeah, it, it is an yeah. I, it is an hour, at least an hour for each one of those. Yeah, uh, I mean we have multi-day long trainings um, that talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yep. Um, um, but that's there. I it like make sure you have the video and the slides are available as well. And mm-hmm. you know if you're interested in that topic, make sure you go. And I have an expert that can spend, ask questions on. Yeah, exactly. Spend some I'll, time. I'll reach that. out to John Spend some time. I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was hoping line. to catch Not that me. one. People I work with is yeah. who you want to talk to. <laughs> oh. I, mean, I, I saw the email from John announcing you were going to do that and mm. I had planned to catch it, but damn it, whatever. Stupid So life. I'm glad it went well. And you ought to, they ought to, I hopefully they have you back for deep dives on each one of those categories. Yeah, because it's like the rabbit hole goes deep. Like secure boot, like there's always some really interesting nuanced thing in constant evolutions in that technology. Um, I think it was last week. And I heard other podcasts actually talking about the, they covered it a little more in depth from a Linux angle in that the guy who, maintain system d works for 
is it Susie Linux? He or is it is it Red Hat? He he works for one of the large open source uh, companies, right? And is mm-hmm. in the position now where, like, he's a maintainer of this huge open source project. Whether you like System D or not, probably not. But like, it's it's prolific and it's open source implementation, yeah. right? And he was the one. Like, his they were describing like his job is to talk about like what's the next generation of things we're going after? And he's the one that was pushing for, I think his name's Leonard, uh, ironically enough. Not Leonard Not, not the other Leonard, right? Yeah. From the, uh, what is that project? Enzyme. Enzyme. Um, different Leonard. But in, so the system D Leonard was talking about the unified kernel image. Like how do we protect things like a NIT RD um, in the secure boot process? It being this RAM disk that you can load arbitrary stuff in. And if that's not protected in secure boot, you can circumvent secure boot in that context, right? So, like, there's this really, really cool things happening with thinking about how to make secure boot better, how to validate all of the so, like, how far up in the stack do we go to validate things that are involved in secure mm. boot? Um, so that was an interesting secure boot aspect. Um, it's interesting, like, why you would do that. Mm. My coworker John had a great quote, and if oh here it is right here so and this is this really got me thinking because i'm like john i'm like you really like you cat like you nailed it so he said an operating system is supposed to manage and create an abstraction layer for hardware just pause right there and think about in one sentence describing what an operating system's job is right i'm I'm sitting here hanging with my mouth open going an operating system is supposed to manage and create an abstraction layer for hardware Operating system security depends upon the idea that the hardware is being controlled by the operating system. The initial state of the operating system, however, is controlled by a bootloader. A malicious bootloader, therefore, leads to a malicious operating system which undermines every other security control. I'm like, John, that might be like the most prolific thing you ever said to me. Fucking nailed it. <laughs> like, like, fucking nailed so he it. Says that, he says Jesus. that stuff all the time. You're like, like all uh, the time. Yeah. They're like, what? The, like, wow. Like, unpack, like, rewind that and, like, unpack that statement. That's like why we need to Lord. protect the bootloader as, like, a, like the, one of the fundamental security controls. Like, you can't trust the rest, rest of your system mm-hmm. if you can't trust the bootloader. You know, I'm thinking, like, I'm starting to unpack this and I'm like, Holy crap! Like I, I am now in a little bit different industry, mm-hmm. and a similar industry to yours, but little different. And this speaks true. You, you talk about an IoT device that is loading an operating system, and it's got to load it for some bootloader. And uh, yeah, this, IoT this, devices this have bootloader. Uh, this fucking U, true. U boot. U boot is a, you know the common mm-hmm. Linux one. Um, you know, we're we're going to talk about a bunch of others, and sure, but you know. It, you you talk to our community. You, you're probably more familiar with U-Boot. Like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah, yes. The other thing, it, it, this is just a secure boot aspect of my presentation. The other thing was I, I updated the method for which I recommend you update your DBX. Richard Hughes at the um, Linux vendor firmware um, service Security LVFS Linux vendor firmware service or security? The service security. Now I'm questioning myself. Um, <clears throat> so this is the process that runs on Linux that if vendors participate allows you to update your firmware in Linux. Right? Mm-hmm. So if 
whoever makes your uh, storage device mm-hmm. has participated in LVFS. You could run LVFS on Linux. LVFS would go, hey, you've got a SanDisk whatever. Yep. And guess what? There's a firmware update for it. Do you want to use LVFS to update that firmware? Yes, please. It also now supports updating of your DBX, the revocation list of hashes uh, or certificates uh-huh. that basically that DBX invalidates software yep. that should be part of the secure boot process. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the original article for Eclipsium that was like, here's my hacked way for updating your DBX. After that, Richard updated LVFS. You can run LVFS now. And LVFS goes, hey, you've got an outdated DBX. Do you want to update it? And I'm t- like, so they took your hack method and turned it into a real method. And turned it into a real, exactly what, awesome. Richard, uh, what Richard has done. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And I'm like, all right, I'll trust you, Richard. Let's do this. And then I, now I've done it on all four of my systems using the LVFS method. And it's worked perfectly. Knock on wood. You know, all four of my my sample size is small. Now Richard has produced um, uh, because my coworkers know Richard. We've seen the gra- sure. Richard's like a lot of people. Like I think over a million people at the time had actually up- used his method to update uh, their TBX, seemingly with with success. Mm-hmm. Like I, again, in my testing, has worked really well. That is now my recommended method on Linux for mm. updating your DBX. Like don't leave it up to your OEM. Don't leave it up to your operating system because there's a million different Linux distributions. They may all do it differently. Take control. They're starting to package, and if they don't install LVFS, it gives you insights into your hardware and allows you to update your DBX, mm. which, which is super important, um, and you should be enabling secure boot and keeping your DBX up to date. Do so that-, that was one of the updates in my presentation that I hadn't had in previous versions of the presentation or in my blog post. Dude, I, I got to tell you that a uh, little tangentially... You know, on a personal side, um, with my going to finite state, yesterday they published a press release mm-hmm. that they had hired me. Nice. And had some quotes. And like, Aww. I feel like a big boy now. And they wrote the press release. I had a chance to edit it and add a few things. And, you know, we talk about that writing from earlier on in the show, in that I wrote some additions to the press release. And they didn't edit a single word. Nice. Which was awesome. So apparently I'm well-spoken and well-written, um, which made me feel good. Uh, but one of the things that they said, and uh, um, I got called out on with some folks that I shared it with, they said they referred to me as a decade-long thought leader. Oh. And I'm like, you'd think that would hurt. No. I argue it's more than a decade. But in my career in this industry, and arguably our career in this industry, like this is a prime example of, holy crap, dude, we grew up with thought leaders. <laughs> like old me would have been offended by, you're calling me a thought leader? I know you've been a thought leader for more than 10 years, though. I'm, I think they said multi-decade or multi-decade. Whatever, whatever, I would say whatever, multi-decade whatever would be more is. accurate. Like, that is very cool. But the fact that someone else recognized me, and now I'm like saying, dude, like we're in the same boat here. You did this thing that is now recognized by industry leaders and is like the now way to do this thing. Dude, you're a thought leader. 
Yeah, but I think, I think a lot of that. I think that's awesome, first of all. But like, also, I think it's because like all of us, not just Larry and I, right? Yeah. But Lee, Tyler, all of us on the show, like we care. We do. Right? Like it's not about anything else, but like my example with like making sure your DBX is up to date. Like, dude, I, I don't care. Like, Check yourself how before you, you wreck it. yourself. Yeah. Like, right? Just do it. This is something that you should, this betters the security mm-hmm. as a whole. And, and the, like we should do that, and like I, I want to make sure I evangelize that in in my position, like because I, and not only because I feel very passionately about these issues, and specifically with firmware, these really like esoteric issues, like that's where I love to play in is like those esoteric. This was in a dusty corner kind of thing, uh-huh. and I want to shine a light on that and be like, look, this corner is really dusty. You need to clean it up. Yep. That, w- that was me with metadata. Like, yes. this corner is, a this lot cor- of your this corner is new, yep. but it's freaking dusty. <clears throat> Go clean it up. And damn it, firmware is really, really If dusty. only there was a company that was doing this research and provided a nice product for it. Man, huh. if only that company would release a community version so everyone could get the word out and know about these risks and vulnerabilities. Yeah, that'll never Ouch. happen. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Huh. There's... there's <laughs> Stuff I can't talk about publicly. Multiple things. I love you. Hopefully, I, I, come will I, come to light. Uh, I've on only the show. I've only been there Someday. a week, so I don't know those deep dark secrets yet. Tyler, I apologize. I'm not internal, <laughs> so I don't know any of them either. I just I just keep pushing them. <laughs> Tyler, you're about as internal as I am right about now. I did my i nine documents and yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I got so the, I got the, the funny the Good. funny thing about your reaction to that story is I was. The other day, uh, for whatever reason, we watched the old movie called "Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter," and there's a scene where they give him the his first key to the executive washroom, and he's slightly tearing up. I'm an executive now. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm it a thought really leader good. now. Wait. Yeah, you're a thought leader now. So I, well, course, let's, let's, we've wait, all I, known it for a while. We, we, I've but, been recognized as a thought leader, and Paul, yes. I'm recognizing you as a thought leader, whether it's well in a press release yes. or not. It's a it's a large burden to carry. Somebody, it is. It is. Right. Um, my story is eighteen through twenty three. Uh, Useless. Don't bother. No, I. <laughs> kidding. I know, right? <laughs> I hate to do them a disservice by not like fully writing them up and covering them on the show, but I did do the thing in in our internal software where I, I put them towards the end as yep. like. I just did. I just didn't. I didn't have the time yep. of the cycles. Oh, this looks I interesting. I ran out of the cycles to to process. And I was like, we only have a certain limited amount of time, which we're getting pretty close to here at the end of the show, right? Where we don't have time for all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't go read them. And I want to encourage our our audience to go to our show notes pages and, um, like recognize the ones that we wrote up. Certainly, but like, sure. there's also stuff that like I thought was important that like I maybe just didn't get to. Like maybe mm. we should have covered them on the show. And and this and send us feedback. Like hit us up on social media. Like my Twitter DMs the, the, are open. Yeah. Like you can find it's Same. at Security Weekly at Hacks. Like you can find us Hacks of the Matrix on Twitter. Yep. If you're still using that thing, or um, we we Discord. just start publishing our Mastodon. Mastodon. Or, or, like, we'll, we'll get, get there. Up for that. We'll, yeah. we'll get there. <laughs> Uh, however you want to try and get a hold of us, right? Like the email addresses for each show are on yeah. uh, the website. So um, mm-hmm. if, if you're like, I really want to hear your thoughts on this or like whatever. Well, we can go back to it. Yeah, l- let us know. So yeah. like there was practical yeah. client side path traversal attacks, which I thought was really interesting research. Um, 
that I think was so. I, I, and this I, was I, like, and I think one electro, of the, was this Electron apps. I think it was so. yeah, JavaScript code yep. on the client side, which would largely be Electron as the framework for doing that. Like awesome resource that I'd like just. Yep, I think I think where you're really going color. with this, Paul, is that yep. If you are listening to the show, please do go check out the show notes for these episodes, the blog posts for these episodes. Because there are stories that we add in many cases that we don't get to cover because of time. Yes. Because we thought that they were interesting. Yeah. Um, zero days are exploited on a massive scale in increasingly shorter time frames. And this came from the Microsoft report. This might be what we want to cover quickly, Lee, because I think you covered this. Is that the this Microsoft got, Digital This was the report? Microsoft report. Like okay. Microsoft basically yeah. released yeah. a report, uh, a threat report, as it were. Um, that talked about like zero days are increasing in you. Like there was a lot of things in this report. I didn't have time to read this report. Tyler and I were talking about SGS, SGX enclaves <laughs> as an mm-hmm. example. Therefore, we didn't have time to go read the Microsoft. Maybe you read that, Tyler, but like I didn't have the cycles to go read the mm-hmm. the Microsoft there, threat report. There are, there are only so many hours a day exactly. in a day. And I would argue that my projects have projects yes and tyler sleeps two hours a night and even he still doesn't have time for all of this stuff. so lee did you read did you read the articles about the microsoft report or did you have time to read the microsoft report i i skimmed a bit of the report then i skipped down to about page 80 sure <laughs> yeah Crap. it was a lengthy report Crap. Yep. yep yeah it is and it's, it's a good report by the way yeah. it, i'm not dissing it by saying i skipped down because what they got into is there uh, it's page well 86 I think it is cyber resilience yes it's a damn buzzword but what it does is it lays out things you can do and arguments to support them to take to the boardroom to to raise the bar at your organization why these things are important more research on all kinds of uh, insights and that's only about 10 15 pages and it's easy to read but that to me was like the the real gem. The rest of the reports is this is, supports it. But like, so if you want to do something to prevent some of these attacks, read through this and take what you can, and and get somebody to give you some funding to do it. Um, now I think the so, report was lengthy because if you go to the report homepage, so it's Microsoft's Digital Defense Report 2022. They say they. Their unique vantage point is 43 trillion signals synthesized daily, mm-hmm. 70 billion threats blocked, 10,000 domains removed, and 8,500 plus security and threat intelligence experts. Mm-hmm. Wow. So engineers, researchers, data scientists, threat hunters across 77 countries work at Microsoft. And this yeah. is kind of the culmination of their, so hence the lengthy report. A lot of yeah. the insights that came from it. It got a lot of press coverage um, in something I think we, we we should probably all go read. Given, right. again, their unique vantage point I think is fair. I think it's a fair, there's, fair point. Yeah, there's also a Microsoft blog that's an executive summary. It's about yeah. a page and a half. Which should only be used to wit your whistle. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. this is this is I, yeah, this is a really good report. And I wish I did have time to read all all of the 114 pages, but like I said, I, I, I really like their section on cyber resiliency, even though sometimes you just wrinkle your nose at, the, at, a, at, a, at a buzzword like that. But damn it, there's good stuff to go with that buzzword. Keep reading. 
Uh, one of the other ones I want to highlight too is like, I feel like there's a lot of very specific web application attacks that if you're not doing regular web application pen testing, you should still familiarize yourself with. It's kind of like we talk about memory safety issues in the classes and specific bugs with the memory safety. There's like a huge list also with web applications. This one talked about uh, prototype pollution, which is essentially, in, take yourself back to object-oriented programming, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, JavaScript's dynamic property assignment feature to make global changes to critical objects. And that feature is what is abused in the attack called prototype pollution. And there is a specific instance in ember.js that they talk about in this article. Port Swigger's Daily Swig also has an article that talks generically about prototype pollution. Again, if this like isn't in your... There's a lot of web app testers going like, yeah, like prototype pollution. Like that's, yeah. that's my jam. Like I, I look at that yeah. all the time. If you're not, familiarize yourself with that. Yeah. Like I feel like take the opportunity to go, oh, like I've heard of that, but I haven't quite like grokked it fully and done a deep dive. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like because I, you know, I, I, I liken this to BSD bandits. Like I'm going to read a man page a day. Mm. I feel like there's like a bug class a week maybe that you should also be familiarizing yourself yeah. with so that like the next time it comes up like oh i remember that attack because i spent that you know hour mm. or two that that one day and i read about prototype pollution and understood it and grokked it the, the problem is with you paul that the same the man page that you read every week is always man finger yes it's my favorite <laughs> it's my favorite well you can grok some someone fully by eating their finger <laughs> wow <laughs> that that was not a That's quotable quote. Right out of Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh huh. Uh huh. Are you grok in fullness? Too obscure? Nope. Oh, Nigerian scammer. Uh, some other podcasts were talking oh, yeah, about the Nigerian guy. scammer guy. In, he got 11 years in a U.S. prison. I, and also, like, just FYI in this show, like, I don't want to be, like, too editorial or talking yeah. about, like, cyber criminals that have, like, going to prison kind of thing because like i think there's a lot of coverage about that in the industry like i, I like we did in this show i like digging into more of the technical details yep. right yeah. um uh and, and maybe some higher level things like i thought our supply chain discussion was very relevant right but then there's like the more of the editorial side mm. which i think you know deserves a mention but not the focus and i, I this nigerian scammer I, I think it's interesting that a nigerian scammer is going to spend 11 years in a u.s prison yeah. You know what? You know, prison sucks. Getting caught for a crime Thanks. sucks. Doing those crimes is wrong. And I think this is very much my editorial on this is that this is very much the scientific method. And that scientific method is fuck around and find out. Mm -hmm. And he fucked around and found out. It sucks. I, I will say I don't I don't wish prison on anyone. If you had to think about what prison would look like in the imperial sense in star wars mm. you should mm -hmm. watch andor and that's all okay. spoilers yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but the, yeah, so so i included this story because when i first saw the headline i thought what somebody got busted for doing the disposed print sent me money thing <laughs> yeah then i'm reading farther and it's like this clown was 
posting all these luxury cars and things he'd scam people out of him. I mean, oh, what let the me guess. heck did he think he was, was going to happen? He was on a yacht, and there was girls in bikinis <laughs> beside him, right? <laughs> yeah. With his Bitcoin wallet wrapped in a bunch of blankets and big a coffee gold, tin in the bathroom. Big gold chain, Adidas tracksuit, bikini girls I on mean, the side. The on guy was suffering horribly. I mean, now he is suffering horribly. Yeah. But, that's a I mean, sharp so that's, contrast I mean, to what he'll, prison will be like. Yeah. Right. And uh, But there is, seems to be an increasing trend in, in distributed international law force bringing people down. So I'm hoping that message is getting through. I know it's very difficult to do. I get that. But I'm hearing more success stories on that front. So I can be optimistic, right? Or is it naive? I'm hoping it's optimistic. I think the fact that Why not both? U.S. law enforcement went back 10 years into the blockchain and found someone that's yeah. still... Like, I still think that like that's resonating with me. Like, the, the long arm of the law. Yes. <sighs> all righty so Shall sam, sam is giving us the, the the cutoff notice here that we should Hook. probably uh oh we're done i was done i didn't awesome. have anything else hey. i didn't have anything else unless wow. anyone else had anything else i didn't have anything else that uh, was a great show thank oh. you everyone for listening and watching larry take us out over and out of here <laughs>